you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jim Salakrup, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is The Amazing Spider-Man, episode 18, covering a period of The Amazing Spider-Man from 1987 to 1988. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm Adam Chapman, your Spider-Man co-host. And we are talking about this one because I, I chose this volume because, because of a movie that just happened to come out just this week. Uh, have you seen it yet, Adam? I have actually already. I uh, have an episode up about it. It was, uh, it, you know, it wasn't terrible. <laughs> there you go, everybody. Adam says it wasn't terrible. <laughs> <laughs> For more information on that, check out the Comic Shenanigans podcast and hear Adam's full review on on, on the Venom movie. Absolutely, it's actually it's, uh, it was funny um, when I was recording. It was episode six one six. No I was like, way. This is how I decided to celebrate six one six. It's Venom. <laughs> Great. <laughs> oh wow. Well, there you go. Uh, but we're not going to talk about the movie here. We are talking about no. the volume, the epic collection that collects the first appearance of Venom. Now, it's funny that it's titled Venom because it's really only one issue out of these 20 issues that we're going to be talking about in this episode. Yeah, it's interesting. But I mean, like, obviously, they they couldn't name it anything else. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. I mean, they, I guess they could have called it Mad Dog Ward or something, but that's not that great of a story. And... Uh, yeah, there's there's nothing really else. Yeah, you're right. There's nothing that really pulls it together. I mean, yeah, I mean, from an epic collection wise, yeah, there, there's no overarching themes. Uh, if anything, it's basically you know volume one of the Michelinie McFarlane run, but you can't call it that. So nope. this is as good a name as any. I guess so. And you know what? It times with the movie, so it's marketing. That's what it is. <laughs> it's almost like they planned it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I feel like before we move on to uh, any of the other content, we should get the, the we should talk about the quality of this trade paperback. I mean, the fact that it sucks. It's been making some waves on the Marvel Masterworks forum, that's for sure. <laughs> Adam, what are the issues with this trade paperback? Well, I guess the biggest one seems to be, uh, especially with like the, the cover stock. It folds easily. Uh, it bends. It curls. Uh, pretty much all the paper seems to. Um, like I've been reading it in the last few days, and it, you would think that I've been reading it for like a year. Like it's just, it's becoming dog-eared very quickly. It's, it's just sad to look at. Like it's just, it's a very. It, once you start reading it, it's a sad volume. If you never touch it and leave it on a shelf, and it's pressed within other books, you might never notice a problem. But yeah. if you actually read it, you're going to be sad really quickly. Yeah, it's weird. It's um, because it's not your typical cover stock. It's way thinner, and yeah, it curls back. Like you don't even have to do anything to to it, and and the cover curls. And I've seen some pictures online where it's so extreme, it looks like it's wrapped around a rolling pin or something like that. Um, and the pages are extra extra thin. And this is all we've seen. This a couple of epics now are like this. The the Daredevil Root of Evil epic is like this. Was it this bad though? 
Yes, the the Daredevil one's worse in my opinion. Um, this one is pretty bad too. And there's just a bunch of there's there's things like um, on Marvel's end, whoever was designing the cover left off the words "Epic Collection" on the spine. Oh, yeah. And and when it went to the printer, so so whoever approved the 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 paper stock, I'm sure Marvel definitely had a say in in what kind of stock they were using. They went for this cheaper stuff that uh, it definitely feels like it's going to tear a little bit easier and. There's a very, very minimal amount of glue in the binding that's holding the pages in, and people have said in the the West Coast Avengers volume that just came out, which is printed by the same people, that pages are falling out because there's not oh enough glue. Like it's it's awful, and I don't know if your copy is like this, but my copy is not trimmed square. So if you line it up, if you just stand it up and stick it on a bookshelf, the top corner. Uh, it's it's trimmed on an angle so the top corner sticks out of the out of the the, the row of books a little bit. <laughs> oh really? I didn't. I, I haven't. You know, I haven't tried. I should try that later. Yeah, I don't know if that's just my copy or if that's like the whole print run, but it's it's just um, kind of a kind of shoddy work, I, and I don't know why it's like this. the The company that printed the book is called Quad Graphics, and so people are up in arms about all these quad books that are coming out now. Because um, it's not the only one. It's not just the epic collections. The the recent Cloak and Dagger volume is like that. The recent Venom Tooth and Claw volume is like that. Like, it's becoming a widespread problem um, from all of these books that have been printed. You know, these were printed several months before they're actually released. Of course. And, and so, hopefully, somebody is uh, sitting up and noticing and making some corrections for um, future volumes that will be published through this printer. Because this is, it's it's pretty shoddy. Yeah, well, I mean, and Marvel Masterworks Forum, and we know that there's people who work for Marvel who frequent there, and so it's not like they're, you know, they would hear this. So I would oh, imagine I, that I they know they do. Yeah, absolutely, they know. They're not speaking up, and I don't expect them to. Uh, oh God, no! To, I wouldn't get into that, that at yep. all. Nope, this it's stepping on landmines if you start commenting on that kind of thing. But uh, uh, we just have to wait and see and hope for the best because um, I'm still, I still will support the Epic Collection because it's a great idea. And I want to see it through. So, but I really hope that they, um, you know, and people like us talking about it on public podcasts like this is, uh, you know, we're getting the word out that these volumes are not done very well. So true. And, and one thing you did make note of on the Marvel Masterworks forum for those who don't frequent it uh, is that you actually kind of referenced what Tom DeFalco said on my show recently, where which is if you want something, like send an actual letter to Marvel because they get so many emails, you know, social media, it, they, they, whereas an actual someone taking the time to mail them a letter, they'll actually that'll that'll have more of an impact. Yeah, they get so few letters these days, like actual real honest to goodness letters that they actually pay attention to those ones. Someone that actually opens it up and looks at it. I'm going to have to start a letter-writing campaign for all those crazy books I want that they're never going to republish. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, boy. Okay, enough about that. That's in the past. Let's talk about this volume. What are the issues we're going to be talking about today, Adam? So, we're talking about uh, Amazing Spider-Man 295 to 310. We're also talking about Amazing Spider-Man Annual 22. And then we have two issues uh, that are not of Amazing Spider-Man. You have Web of Spider-Man 33 and Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man 133. Okay. Now, um, this, is a, this is an interesting period for Spider-Man. If you listen to our last episode, actually, I haven't... I haven't published the last episode we've recorded craven's last hunt <laughs> but i haven't released that one yet i'm releasing that one in a few weeks because i'm going to be talking to jmd mateus about that and i want to have 
some clips from that interview for that episode. But Spider-Man's newly married. Um, this is the beginning of David Michelinie's run. He had a few issues in the last volume of uh, the Epic Collections. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is kind of where he really begins. This is where his story starts. This is where his character development begins. Um, and this is also where rising superstar Todd McFarland joins the Spider-Man crew as well. For sure. One thing I would actually point out, though, is you made an interesting comment that you, know, you haven't put up the you know the last half of our last episode. Um, but to be honest, it doesn't matter because it you know the way that they kind of handle um, uh, Craven's Last Hunt is that it, they never reference it. It just kind of happened. It's like true. it happened. Yep. And then they move on. So the fact that we talked about all this stuff that matters in terms of continuity, and then we went into Craven's Last Hunt, it never gets referenced here. It's almost like it just happened in a pocket universe, especially because the month after, they do the same kind of stunt again. They sure do. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, which is interesting, especially because, as you mentioned in your Salakrup interview, that, you know, Salakrup wanted the stories to kind of go through all three lines and not have each one have its unique identity, which had previous editors who tried to do. So you had Craven's Last Hunt go through all three books, and then right away you have the Mad Dog War doing the exact same thing. It's just like, what is happening? <laughs> And if you're thinking from Mary Jane's point of view, it's like they get married, then all of a sudden Spider-Man's dead for two weeks, she gets him back, and then he's missing, like he, she has no idea where he is while he's in the Mad Dog Ward for another several weeks or whatever it is. Like, they don't get to spend very much time together right after their marriage. Okay, so before we move on to the uh, to the episodes, I want to quickly jump over to Facebook because I asked people for their comments about uh, about this volume. Jason says, overall, I wouldn't call myself a huge Venom fan. However, I love his early appearances. Seeing him for the first time when he first came out blew my mind at the time. And on top of that, him threatening Spider-Man with cannibalism was stuff of nightmares to my 10-year-old self when he first appeared. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Uh, Mark says, was thinking of getting this. Great memories, although printing problems. Sorry to hear about that. But Venom's early appearances were damn good. And then Mark says, this is where my Spider-Man collecting began. I read 300 so much that it then fell apart. And that's too bad, Mark, because it's worth some pretty good coin now. Well, and and now if he picks up this epic, it'll also fall apart. <laughs> yes. But I do remember collecting issues in my local comic shop when I studied in the big city. Venom was my villain because I was there at the beginning. Unfortunately, mm. he became overexposed, but this first story was enjoyable at the time. Yeah. Uh, Frank says, those were incredibly fun days compared to the terrible Osley edited era. Uh, that came right before this. The Michelini, McFarlane, and Salakrup team produced cover-to-cover fun. They gave a nice and sexy married life to Peter and Mary Jane and created great Spidey stories in the process. They managed to have extra creepy characters like Sticks and Stone or Jonathan Caesar while maintaining quite a level of fun. I remember that that the rare appearances of Venom gave the character a special edge or dangerosity when when I read Spider-Man 300 or later 16 and 316 and 17. I felt that there was a real different type of threat for Spidey. And they also managed to work out great crossover tie-in stories. The Inferno issues were great. That's going to be in the next epic collection that we're not talking about in this one. With an interesting take on Harry Osborn as a potential Green Goblin hero that was new, but unfortunately not really focused. 
I also enjoy the fact that for once Peter was somehow successful in these issues. It was a nice change that proved that there was an alternative to the treatment too usually given to Peter. And finally, I guess that a lot of people must have hated McFarlane's art, but even if John Romita Sr. is my favorite Spidey artist, I think that McFarlane added a very modern take. It's very <laughs> true. He's very influential in the way Spider-Man is dealt with today, with the way artists tackle the way they, they draw him. Absolutely. And one more comment from Martin. He says, I came in around here as well, but I was uh, a stuttering sort of entry. I got 312 for some reason, but then missed most of the tail end of McFarlane coming in again at Captain Universe. That's the cosmic Spidey stuff. Uh, and then handed over to Larson, and I stuck around for a good while. But I eventually read the first Venom stuff and subplots like Jonathan Caesar, mentioned above by Frank, in UK reprints around 1992. Uh, that was, And that's when you'd get you'd get issues of amazing web and spectacular and adjectiveless Spider-Man bundled together chronologically in one bumper magazine. And I like that era too. The efforts to make Spidey dark and the arachnite in the Spider-Man title were strained, but Amazing Spider-Man was still fun. So yeah, thank you for all those comments, everybody. Over on Twitter, I asked the question, is Eddie Brock the best Venom host? And, I, and my options were, yes, Eddie for the win. Flash Thompson is better, Mac Gargan is better, and Peter Parker is better. And let's see here. Tied for the last place with 0% of the votes, Mac Gargan and Peter Parker. Nobody liked them as Venom. Technically, I guess Peter Parker wasn't Venom, but close enough. Uh, <laughs> 13% of the votes went to Flash Thompson, but then, of course, 87% of the votes stuck with Eddie Brock as the best Venom host. Yeah, that's fair. Yep. I can't argue with that. Okay, well, what do you say? Let's jump into this book. Okay. Yeah, we're going to start. It's not with um, Amazing Spider-Man. We're going to start with Web of Spider-Man, number 33. So I thought I had about Mad Dog Ward before we actually talk about it. Okay. Is, is it possible that it was written more like an inventory story and then... Because there's a few references to MJ, but not really. And it kind of felt like maybe this was written before the marriage happened. And then they just kind of, because they had to scrap so many plans because the marriage had to happen the way it did. And then they had this, you know, this story with Jim Domateus that they just kind of have to be like, we have a month. We got to fill it with something. Let's use the story plot line that we had and we'll just make it work. That's entirely possible. Uh, in fact, it's, uh, it. I bet it's likely that they they saw this coming up. Maybe Todd McFarlane wasn't able to start on the book at right when they wanted him to, um, or something like that. And and because they have um, Cynthia Martin doing the the artwork for this Mad Dog story in all three issues, so she probably was given quite a good lead time um, to work on that because she had to do all of those three issues, which were being published all in one month. Yeah, I, I feel yeah. like it just it must have just been from some other time because again MJ doesn't even appear there's no real references to her so it, it just feels like a, a very like we just gotta you know throw in a line of dialogue here or there but we can't change the story yeah yeah I think that's probably a good um, a good guess and maybe if uh, you know I tried to reach out to Cynthia Martin uh, on Facebook oh, really she's on Facebook but she didn't accept my friend request or or you know I don't know maybe she's not a very prolific Facebooker so she didn't see that I sent her a message but I'd love to talk to her because she, she's a comic book artist that kind of nobody knows about so let's find True. out about her 
Absolutely. Well, yeah. Did, did you have any luck reaching out to Anne Nascenti to talk about Mad Dog Ward? Um, I did not. I didn't try. But I, if I ever talk to her when we do our Daredevil episodes on her run, then I'll definitely ask a couple of Mad Dog questions uh, when I get to that. I'm I'm trying to think back. It's possible that I talked to her about Mad Dog Ward. Oh well, I'll um, have to listen I, to that. Re-listen to that interview on your on your podcast and. Uh, I, I don't mean this in a um, look at me, I'm so great kind of way, but I've talked to a lot of people. I don't remember anymore half these conversations. <laughs> well, if there is a relevant clip, I'm going to play it right now. Excellent. Okay. Well, you may or may not have heard a clip just then. <laughs> we'll see what happens. It's, it's the magic of podcasting. I'm going to have to <laughs> listen to this podcast to know if, it, if, if a clip happens. That's right. Okay. This is the first part to the Mad Dog Ward storyline, and I just love all three of the covers to the this story, drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz. Yes, the the covers are definitely the most memorable part of the storyline. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, and I think um, I I know that I've bought this issue in single, and I can't remember if I have the other one specifically because of the cover, um, and then uh, ended up being a little disappointed that it didn't look the same on the inside. You were only a little disappointed? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, then I can go back to Moon Knight and read some Moon Knight, and it was all okay. Ah, that's Uh, good. Now, okay, so this one's called What's the Matter with Mommy? And then this one, a mobster, this is kind of a weird story. A mobster has his wife committed in order to shut her up. But the kids, like, want her back, and so they ask Spidey for help when they randomly bump into him. He doesn't believe that they're actually telling any sort of truth, so they kind of take matters into their own hands and Spider-Man then he does end up trying to help but he gets injured and ends up inside the same mental institution that the woman is in. Doesn't it tell you something that you summarized an entire issue in like less than a minute? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I can sum up most of these issues in less than a minute. It doesn't matter how convoluted they are. Yeah. So the Mad Dog Ward is a storyline is one that people remember and it ended up generating a sequel a few years later. Oh, okay. So this isn't the this isn't the last time we'll see the Mad Dog Ward. In I think Amazing Spider-Man, I think thirty to like thirty-two or around there from like nine ninety-three, just before uh, Maximum Carnage happens, they had a return to the Mad Dog Ward. Can't tell you anything about it. I don't remember it at all. But I remember seeing it advertised. So it, eventually they went back to this, and Anacenti came back. Oh, okay. Huh. But but this story is weird in so many different ways. The first issue, I would say, is probably the best. Um, I thought it was, you know, it's unsettling. It's uncomfortable. Um, you know, something's wrong with this these these kids' mom. Um, you know, their family life is definitely going to hell. You know, they're trying they're trying to figure out what's wrong with mom. They want to run away from their dad. And yeah, like it's 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 creepy. It's dark. It's a weird choice. Um, maybe not a weird choice for Web of Spider Man, but a weird choice to kind of headline all three Spider books. Yeah. Because um, it's not really a Spider Man story. I mean, and you could argue that Craven's Last Hunt isn't either in some ways, but this more so because it's Peter's so far out of the costume. It's weird and uncomfortable. It's awkward. It goes on too long. It feels like days and days pass. You're like, this is like a long time. Peter's just gone flat out missing. Like, and we just had this. Like, it's it's yeah. weird enough on its own that he's gone this long. And at least with um, with Craven's Last Hunt, you had some sort of exploration of you know, the people in his life starting to notice, or at least MJ noticing. Maybe they didn't look at Aunt May noticing that Peter was gone, but at least the one person in his life who should know where he is all, all the time was dealing with suddenly he's gone. Whereas here, he's also gone for a duration, especially right after he was just thought to be dead, 
and yet there's no examination of this impact on MJ. So it just feels yeah. so weird and isolated. Well, they, I think Peter does make a comment in the, this first issue that Mary Jane is in Paris at the moment for some sort okay. of modeling gig. So it could be that she's not affected because she's not, you know, waiting up for him at home. But you think that, especially a new, newlywed couple, they'd she'd call or say, "How was your day?" or you know, this kind of stuff. Which seems to indicate or support the theory that they didn't think she was around, that, that this was planned before the wedding happened. Right. Like the fact that you know th- he doesn't even see her off; like she's already gone. Like she's just not in this story whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's keep on going and uh, do the next issue. <laughs> do you think you can sum up this issue in thirty seconds? Peter doesn't know who he is, and uh, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Peter's in a mental hospital. He makes friends with another mental patient. They're all in this mad dog ward, and the uh, those kids still want their mommy. And is this the one where they they pull a gun on their dad, or is that the next issue? Like it's super weird. Um, This is I oh I don't remember if it's this one or the last one, but yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, and at the very end, they kind of reveal the the bigger picture story that's going on the thing that makes this a comic book that there's this mm. uh, there's this mad doctor that is experimenting on patients and he what he's doing is putting them in a dream like state or no he's putting them into dreams and he can communicate through their dreams and telling them you know, giving them commands and he can basically control people through their dreams and that's what he wants to do to Spider-Man because he's found out that that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Well, well, which is weird because he doesn't actually know it's Peter Parker because they keep calling him John Doe and he knows it's Spider-Man. But he never right. indicates his right. name, yeah. which is so weird that all these people like basically know he's Spider-Man, but they don't do anything about it and they never connect the dots on who he is or try to find out. It's just like that's a weird giant well, red flag. I think that half of them think that he's just nuts. Yeah, he, he dresses up as a spider in, as Spider Man and jumps around, but he doesn't actually he ha- isn't actually Spider Man. That's why he's in the mental hospital. Yeah, and then the the one person who does believe him actually honestly wants help, and so is not going to spoil that for everybody. And then the the doctor, I like the fact that you know we're gonna find out who Spider Man is. They unmask him. It's like who the heck is this guy? I've never seen him in my life. Of course, mm. Sp- Peter Parker is just one of millions of people in new york right yeah it's weird in the third issue when you have the arranger telling kingpin that they have someone claiming to be spider-man as a patient there and the kingpin doesn't even seem to blink like he doesn't care he doesn't find out yeah exactly yeah that is a little odd kingpin was an odd inclusion to have in this story he didn't really have a purpose except for that this mad doctor is kind of working for yeah him. Like I don't mind him being there. It's just weirder to be like, "Hey, remember that villain that you, sorry, that that hero that you fought all these times? We have a guy who says he's that guy." No, yes, you're in a psych ward anyway. He may not care, but it seemed a little odd that he wouldn't even think about it for a minute. Yeah. So I can see that this was. If you're talking about this being an inventory story, I think it might have been two issues. But there mm. are three spider titles, and Salakrup's like, "Well, I want it to stretch over all three, because this is so much filler in this one. It's mostly talking." The story really, really takes its time in the second issue. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really go anywhere. So you could even take this one. You could boil this one down to make two panels to explain <laughs> to explain this mad dog, uh, this, uh, this doctor that's in the basement, and stick it at the end of the, the previous issue, or stick it at the beginning of this next issue, and you'd have a two-issue story. Yeah, no, for sure. I It's interesting, because when I read it in the epic, it might have been the first time I'd ever actually read it, because... 
or I, I, although I'm not sure about that. I probably did read it in some other way, but I just feel like because I remember it being a big deal when they did the the sequel, and that reading the original, I'm just like, this isn't good. I don't like this. Yeah, it's like why did they make the the sequel? <laughs> <laughs> like and, and here's the thing like I love Andesenti and this feels like a very Andesenti book it doesn't feel like a Spider-Man book right it's very true like she's a she's a great writer and this is totally up her alley this is the type of stuff she does so well but it doesn't fit for Spider-Man I would argue it doesn't and the fact that he doesn't really do any real Spider-Man things and it doesn't like I would think it kind of supports the fact that it's not really a good Spider-Man uh, do you think that this could have been a Daredevil story huh yeah, it would work better. So yeah, I, I don't know what the timeline is for when she was working on Daredevil, but it's possible that it was yeah a Daredevil plot that they decided. You know what? We're really short. Uh, whoever was the Daredevil editor, I think it might have been Machio. Maybe he kind of handed it over and said, "Hey, you, you need something? I, who knows?" Yeah, maybe. <laughs> okay, let's quickly plow through this last part of this story. Spectacular number thirty-three, just called "I Am Dot 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 the Spider." And in this one, this is the the conclusion to the story. Peter manages to wean him or like pull the plug on the the morphine that's keeping him sedated, and uh, convinces a worker to help him out and uh, switch the drugs of the other patients so that because the whole ward is being kept pretty medicated, so mm-hmm. they become unmedicated. He uh, breaks free and has to face the the this guy brainstorm that the doctor is cooking up, and then. Um, yeah, and then the mobster Frank shows up out of nowhere to rescue Vicky, and they go off and be a happy family again. So there's a bunch of things that I find wrong with this. First of all, Vicky actually was suffering from some sort of mental illness we saw in the first issue. She's talking to herself or other voices in her head or something, but there's no mention of any of that um, in, in the conclusion of this story. Like, she was disturbed, and her family was worried about her, her kids were like, what's going on with mommy? But now they're all a happy family again. Yeah, it's it, it it's so weird. It doesn't make any sense. Narratively, it's just, it's it's this weird happy ending that doesn't shouldn't exist. Like, suddenly, yeah, the kids seem so happy, even though they, like, pulled a gun on their dad and they hated him. And now everyone's, like, happy and they're going, yay. Like, it's so weird. And the only thing weirder than that is Peter Parker's uh, disguise to get him back into the Mad Dog Ward so the people won't recognize who he is, which is so ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is I think it's horribly ir- irresponsible that Peter Parker sets all of these patients f- uh, free. Like, I mean, that's okay because this was an abusive mm-hmm. place, but they really should have had help elsewhere because these are some of them are actual honest-to-goodness patients that, that do need some sort of help, psychological help. No, you have zero at the end, you know, with his cape saying, I love it when good guys win. Part of me, that dark side of my brain is like, he probably slipped off that building right after that. Like, Right, yeah. It was uh, it was not a very Peter Parker thing to do, I think. So <laughs> it's just, a, yeah, this is a, a an odd story. Um, a lot of it was, I mean, not a lot of it, but I, I like you said, I like the first issue. I really like how it starts. It builds some good tension. It asks a lot of good questions. But then it just goes into some odd places and kind of drags. And... It does. Yeah. So want to talk about Amazing Spider-Man 296? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So we got uh, Dave Michelani. So this is his first appearance in this volume after three issues of Innocenti. And you have Alex Saviak actually joining him on uh, pencils for the for next couple of issues. And uh, it's a Doc Ock story. And uh, it's easy to forget for those who 
didn't read the classic uh, owl and octopus storyline that uh, for a while um, Doc Ock was really crippled by his, this overwhelming fear of, of Spider-Man and, uh, you know, kind of totally seized up and tense whenever confronted with him. And uh, I really like how Michelinie kind of uh, uses that here and, and eventually after the third issue kind of figures out a way to get him out of this status quo. But I thought this was just a fun issue. Um, very engaging, very Spider-Man, like, this is a Spider-Man issue in a way that, again, the previous three issues weren't. You have Spider-Man swinging around, you have him, you know, kind of trying to, to stop uh, Doc Ock's tentacles when they're on their own, and and, and uh, this is just, this is a great issue. It was so much fun. I agree, and I love just, um, I, I, I like Alex Saviuk, and he's he just his classic Spider-Man, right? And so mm-hmm. you get that feel. It's so different than what Todd McFarlane's doing. Um, when you contrast the the two, it's like this guy is firmly in the, you know, John Romita school of Spider-Man, and then Todd McFarlane does a complete 180 when when he jumps on. So it's nice to have both of those in here to really emphasize this transitional period of what Spider-Man is going through, like the Spider-Man comics are going through at this time. Absolutely. Uh, let me see here. I also liked the fact that uh, Spider-Man got some new web shooters so we're not forgetting about spider-man's uh, science side and this is something like this is just one of the the seeds that's starting to plant here that david michelini will um, expand on later on in this volume he's not just a photographer true yeah they're d- definitely bringing him back to the the science uh the science ideas but yeah i know it's it's pretty cool and, and it makes sense like he he builds it in in such a way that you know he's he runs out of, of webbing, and so instead of just walking home and being pissed off about it, he goes home and starts thinking about well, how can I make this better? Yeah, and I feel like these improvements have never been addressed after this. No, because no. they make a lot of sense. Like they they in some ways they eliminate the classic you know kind of fallback of oh we're just going to have Spider Man webbing ways across the city, and then suddenly he's going to run out of web fluid, and now there's tension. Yeah, and this exactly. is kind of a way of saying here's a way to prevent that from ever happening again. So it's in some ways not surprising that no one ever uses it again yeah but it's a cool concept and i also i I really enjoy the representation of the bad dreams that doc ock is having about spider-man it's it's very compelling it definitely makes you kind of feel for him and i like that they michelini is going to such lengths to show that as much as he's a villain he is a tortured soul he is someone who was dramatically changed i mean retcons later on would kind of you know show that he was always kind of a little bit messed up but the idea here is that he was kind of a, a, a good regular guy and maybe a little withdrawn and then you know the 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 accident with the arms happened and it unlocked this kind of other part of his personality and that's how what we're contending with now so i really like how michelani writes doc ock i love the decision to put spider-man in his classic red and blue in doc ock's dream sequence mm. because the black costume is supposed to be the scarier costume. Yeah. Um, but to Doc Ock, the scarier costume is is the classic one. And I love how just in the one panel um, on page 79 where there's the huge Spider-Man facing a t- teeny tiny Doc Ock and Spider-Man is given little pupils, how mm-hmm. just the addition of those little pupils makes Spider-Man look kind of menacing and fierce. True, and it's also kind of a, a nod to you know classic Ditko too. Yes, yeah, totally. Okay, one more point before um, before I'm ready to move on, or two more points on, on number eighty three. We see uh, on page eighty three, we see a, a Spider Verse there <laughs> in a dream sequence. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's fun. And then on page, uh, there's a couple of different pages where Peter's 
sitting in his apartment on page 81 and he's got a painting behind him Nagel and that's a there's a an artist a pop a pop artist who was really popular in the 80s at this time called okay. Patrick Nagel and he did a famous painting called Girl with Sunglasses and he did the cover art for Duran Duran's Rio album um, and he was, oh. he was hot stuff at this time so um, Alex Saviak puts Nagel paintings all over Peter Parker's apartment you'll see him in, in the next issue as well and then Todd McFarlane actually carries that through and puts the Nagel paintings on, in, the, in the apartment to keep the consistency going interesting yeah Oh yeah, number two ninety seven. Or do you have anything else to to add? No, no. I was just I was actually thinking of of two ninety seven. Okay. Um, again, it's still Michelani and Saviak. This is where he actually debuts the new refinements to his uh, web shooters because he's which is funny. Like you think you you know you test out your web shooters in a controlled environment where you're on the ground, not in danger. Instead, he's in the middle of a web swing. He's like, they work. Ha ha. <laughs> yeah. I'm just gonna leap off this building and hope that uh, all goes well. This does feel like very classic kind of, you know, 70s and 80s comics where uh, there's a lot of, you know, telling and sh- like telling and showing at the same time. Like, you know, yeah. they spend yeah. like basically the next two full pages just talking about all the different changes he's made to his web shooters and what he can do now. And again, very cool. And some of these were definitely held over for a long time, but some of them were quickly forgotten. So in this one, um, Doc Ox Arms... It's an interesting thing here. They they have kind of have a mind of their own. So when when Doc Ock freezes, when he gets paralyzed with fear, when he sees Spider Man, he's programmed the arms, or somebody's programmed the arms, or somehow the arms have now made the decision that they will act on their own in Doc Ock's best interest because Doc Ock's mind is shut down, and Spidey has to fake defeat so that Doc's mind regains control. He no longer becomes Spider uh, afraid of Spider Man, and that way. Uh, Spider-Man can defeat him because he kind of messes himself up often. For sure, and again, I, I like that. It's a it's a smart it's a smart way of figuring out a way around that storyline. Yeah. So in this one, um, there's a painting that's stolen. Spider-Man uh, thwarts um, a paint a robbery, and the painting is uh, by the the phonetic spelling of Sinkevich. Bill Sinkevich's name is on page 108. <laughs> So it's, that's I thought that was kind of funny. Um, the painting gets destroyed, and then on uh, what page is it here? It's, Doc Ock actually kills somebody. I was quite surprised to see this. Like a bunch of times when he's you know hurting security guards, he just smacks them or whatever, and they he, you don't see what happens to them. But there's this guy in a car. He, Doc Ock like bludgeons him with his arms. You don't see it because it's all contained inside the car. But it's bloody, mm-hmm. and like this, he rips this guy apart. He he grabs him and pulls him through the window and just like tears him up to what, pieces. What page is this again? This is page one hundred four. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That there is actual blood there. Yeah, it's actual blood, and so it's like this is a this is kind of a hint of the fierce Doctor Octopus that we know he can be, but have recently has been kind of treated as a second class villain. Let me ask a question. If they hadn't shown the blood, would you have assumed he was dead? I well, I mean the sound effects there. <laughs> yeah, I guess the squish. It's the squish, really. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what is what else is Doc Ock going to do when he wraps his arms around a guy and like if you pull someone through a window like that, like you're breaking the spine as you're pulling him through the window because he's going in belly first. 
Yeah, I guess that's true. There's no way this guy survives. <laughs> um, one thing I like about these issues um, is the the bugle staff that we don't see much anymore, but I appreciate that they had introduced. And Michelani used like uh, a lot of Joy Mikado in his Web of Spider-Man run, so right. I like that she showed up here. I like Kate Cushing. Again, I like the, the fact that there were other characters who worked at the Bugle, and it wasn't just Robbie and, and Jameson all the time. Um, I kind of missed that, where there was more levels and more like different hierarchy. The fact that Cushing was the actual one giving assignments and not just Robertson. And we see uh, we don't see much of the Daily Bugle staff in this one, because um, I feel like Salakrup, his intention, while his intention at the beginning was to try and make a weekly Spider-Man book out of all of the titles that kind of fell to the side pretty quick. And especially when Jerry Conway took over Spectacular Spider-Man and started introducing Tombstone, and, like, that's where all of the Daily Planet action... or Sorry, Daily Bugle action started. Um, and that... So you, you see Peter, the reporter, in Spectacular, and all of the, you know, the Robbie story that's going on there, and then Peter Parker... That's true. The married per Peter Parker is in Amazing Spider-Man. That is true. I mean, I mean, it's interesting how things flip, right? Because in the early days of Web, Web was more about Peter Parker working for Now Magazine, and that was kind of you know the more adventurous kind of doing other things that weren't just in New York. Yeah. And then yeah, then you had more of the Bugle stuff kind of taking over Spectacular once Conway came on. It's again, as you said, it's an interesting point of evolution and change. Uh, as you have again a new editor trying to figure out what to do with three different books that's a lot of books for one character and soon it's four like it's not long after yeah. this that they add <laughs> another one and then that doesn't yep. even include all of the, the miniseries and one shots and graphic novels that start coming out Spider-Man exploded in the 90s absolutely okay let's keep on going along here the next issue is number 286 it's called Chance Encounter uh, so you mean 298 298. That's what I meant. Yes. Thank you for All that All right. So this is the big debut. Yep, it sure is. But not of um, he's not inked by himself. He's inked by Bob McCloud. True. So, and this gives a very different feel to Todd McFarlane's art. Bob McCloud, I think, really reins it in. Yes, he does. He keeps it a lot more classic looking, but Todd really loves, like, odd angles and that kind of stuff that you can't get away from. So, um, so it still looks like Todd McFarlane's work. Oh yeah, I'm jealous of people who were around in 1987 who'd been reading Spider-Man for a while because, like, obviously, like I was born in '83, so by the time I was reading Spider-Man, the fact that webbing could look crazy and weird was an accepted thing. Yeah. So, I'm, so you you know you see the the cover of 298, and you have you know the famed spaghetti webbing coming at you. You have kind of a again a very tame McFarlane Spider-Man pose, but he's starting to get there in terms of, you know, where his legs are as he's as he's kind of up in the air. Yep. This must have blown people's minds because, like, this is so different than anything you ever saw before in terms of the webbing. The webbing, the webbing was always very simple. It was strands. It was line work. And now you're seeing this very different kind of, uh, again, spaghetti webbing. It, it, it looks like there's a whole different life to it. It's so, so much more going on. It's so... I, I, I'm jealous of people who got to experience that shift because obviously yeah. I, I didn't get to. I, I came on when the shift had already happened. So it's curious. There's certain things that happen in characters or in, in TV and movies, things that kind of change the game. And I'll never get to know what that feeling was like when this came out. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. But you get to, 
you were there to experience other things like the Clone Saga. So there you Ooh. go. <laughs> this is true. So let's talk about this issue here. Um, we've already talked that this is the first McFarlane, but I want to point out um, in particular Mary Jane's hair. Mm. Because one of the defining characteristics of Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man is how incredibly like late 80s Mary Jane's hair gets in these issues. Yes. And Bob McCloud, like we said, kind of reins it in, but Alex Saviak was drawing it the John Romita way, where it was straight down, and then uh, here already we see that it's got some curl to it, and then once once um, Todd McFarlane starts inking himself, it just goes full on hairspray. Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think. This issue is fun because, like, I like Chance. He's not a villain you see much anymore, but he was a Michelani creation, I believe. Um, so it's nice to kind of see him used here. Also, I'm, this is going to sound very strange, so please go with me for a second. Okay. I feel like this issue really starts the sexual revolution of Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot of innuendo that, that gets thrown out during the McFarlane era, and I don't know if, if it was coming more from Michelinie or just he was just happened to you know interpret what he had got on the page from McFarlane, and then he it just it feels it gets really saucy, it gets saucier and saucier. Um, on on issue uh, sorry page one thirty, you have you know Spider Man <laughs> just in briefs kind of showing up to, for MJ. Like yep. this is different. This is not something you've seen before. You've never there has never been any real sexuality in any way given to Peter. Uh, in his life. I mean, like, even Black Cat, the most sexual character, the idea of her being a more sexual character kind of came a- across later. Even in, when in her regular appearances when she was dating Peter, they, they weren't playing up that sexuality. That came a lot later, and especially, like, as over the years where they made her body more and more ridiculous and uh, more and more cleavage, and it just it became more sexual. But at the time, I would say, I would argue that the character hadn't gone down a real sexual path, and his relationships, even though he was in long-term ones, always seemed, you know, pretty PG. And this was the beginning of a, a little bit more of an adult Peter. And I think McFarlane really pushes that, and, Mc, and Michelani just kind of goes with it. Well, I think that also follows... This, this is probably the beginning of the trend of comics... Of- in general like this is this is what happens through the 90s as things get more and more sexualized and that kind of stuff as the 90s go through you know x-force comes out a little bit later and in the first issue we have domino and cable sharing a bath together it's like that's something we wouldn't see in in spider-man through the 80s i also think there is a difference that when you have adult characters and you have a character who although he's a young adult peter he's always kind of been viewed as as the youth right so it's it's weirder when he starts taking that turn when you have an older an older guy like cable you're like eh, yeah that's normal it's true it's 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 still pushing the boundaries but peter's also married now so he is those kind of he's allowed are, to be sexual he's allowed to be and like you don't um i haven't read the honeymoon issue that they didn't put in the last epic collection so i don't know what um what kind of big if they made a big deal about you know them sleeping together or something like that they probably didn't there's a very sly reference to him being very uncomfortable about going on the honeymoon, and then, like at the end, where it's implied that they finally slept together, he's very happy. You know, these days they would probably sleep together on the first date in a comic book now because they don't ha- seem to have the same sort of, um, I don't know, taboo around those kind of uh, yeah relationships. It, it's in- it's interesting. I was reading an, an issue of Batgirl today, and in it. Um, she uh, it's after well i don't want to do spoilers but something doesn't happen in batman's universe and uh nightwing and batgirl end up in 
the this hotel room and like they're in a, a state of undress and it's heavily implied that they've slept together before and that they do sometimes do this and that i found very jarring because as, as stupid as it sounds because obviously those characters have slept together I, I have a very pg idea of them being this kind of soulmate r- romance so the idea that they're not really together but they still kind of hook up and friends with benefits i found very jarring even <laughs> though i love both characters and i love the pairing yeah the fact that it's in such a modern context i actually i felt like an old man being like a prude and being like eh, i'd rather <laughs> them not be sleeping together which is so weird because like Obviously, why wouldn't they? Yeah. Uh, but it just, you know, I, I, I found myself kind of checking myself and going, why do I feel weird about this? It is. It's uh, it's just not what you're used to. <laughs> it's it's strange no. how, There's just something, how that happens. So, yeah. Something very wholesome about their, about, about again, this idea of soulmates, right? Yeah. And so the idea of them just kind of hooking up felt like it kind of took away from that. I don't know why. It's so weird. Yeah. Well, let's get back to this book here. Um, I want to point out that on uh, what page is it? There's a blackout on page uh, 138. Okay. And that is because Apocalypse has cut the power to the city, oh, yes. I think, in X-Factor number 25. Yeah, in Fall of the Mutants. In yeah. Fall of Mutants. So that's happening. And if you look in this issue, I think it's on the last page of this issue. Uh, yeah, um, there's, a, there's a building that says Down with Mutants. There's a couple of Daimutis scattered throughout these issues to reflect what's happening in the X-Books at this time. Mm-hmm. Well, wasn't there... I, I can't remember which issue it was now because I've read a lot of them recently, but there was also an issue where they're watching, like... I think it was Carson, and there was a, uh, a comment made about Reagan. And they're like, check out this issue of Captain America to understand this joke. And right. Like, That's a deep cut. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, have, I didn't check it out. I meant to do that to see what the the deal was but uh i do remember that like that that's when that is when i mean in some ways that's kind of ludicrous right like that's almost an insane level of connectivity but it's also appreciated because again it makes the marvel universe feel more organic yeah this is a fun issue with chance chance is a fun villain um you know he, he makes bets on on the missions he ends up doing a lot of these issues do kind of run together these two in particular 298 and 299 just because you know they both are on you know continuing the chance story um again you have this you know first kind of appearance of todd mcfarlane kind of doing what he does it is interesting as you mentioned that bob mcleod really kind of reigns him in uh 298 obviously the last page has been reprinted a million times because that is the first kind of cameo appearance of venom um which is you know you it must have been interesting as again i always want to think like what did people re- th- think about this when they read this and that they see this yeah. guy and you see this slithering and you would realize it was the symbiote because of the, you know how the um, the hands look but it's just so interesting that you know they're they're seeding this in you don't even see the villain and this isn't really done anymore like not like this like long form storytelling where you're seeding in future plot developments is just not really a thing of it's really a thing of the past and it's sad yeah well i want to know what people thought when they saw this pic, this uh, this picture of Venom at the end of two ninety nine, mm. because he is so tame compared to what we know of Venom right now. He's just got a kind of a goof, goofy grin on him. Um, he yeah, doesn't but... have all the, the sharp teeth with lots of drool and the big tongue and like spores flying off of him or whatever. 
(laughs) This is true. But again, it's so different because, again, it's obviously the costume. It's bigger. It's meaner. It looks intimidating. Like, yeah, we know all the extra accoutrements. We know the tendrils. We know, you know, all the creepy things that can really make Venom Venom. But it's interesting. Yeah, this is, you know, at his core, this is all he really was. He was just a bigger, souped-up version of Spider-Man. Yeah. Well, before we get into Venom, let's finish talking about um, Chase. Now, I I find that when Chase appears, he's kind of just used as an annoyance to Spider-Man. And I think of we were talking about uh, in the in the Sinister Six volume, chances mm-hmm. in that, um, and he just kind of shows up and is an annoying character. Doesn't really play much into the actual story or anything like that, but. Um, you know, other than the fact that Nathan Lubinsky, spoiler alert, we're not going to talk about that uh, in case you're listening to these episodes in chronological order. But in this story, stuff actually happens to Chance. Chance actually has a purpose. He actually he gets some character development. So I actually think that this was kind of a, um, a nice story for him. Absolutely. I mean, he he's kind of falls into the same category as a, as a black fox. You know, like, he just kind of does his own thing. He's kind of, you know, a weird annoyance sometimes. But once in a while, there's some actual plot development or character development with that character. And I feel like this is that particular issue. And it doesn't hurt that this is probably the best he's ever looked. Yeah. Todd McFarland does a good job with him. He does. The red and blue Spider-Man to me was the real Spider-Man. And I I wanted that. And I figured, okay. They, they, Marvel always likes to have something uh, momentous in their anniversary issues, and I knew the 300 issue was coming up, so I figured I'll have to get you know Jim's permission to see if I could go back to the red and blue costume. Right, and I have to give him a lot of credit because he was the editor in chief; he was the one very much involved, and I think you know he wanted to. Uh, keep Spider-Man in that black and white costume for as long as possible because it's one of those things whenever they try to do a big change with a major character you know the more cynical fans will say stuff like oh it's not going to last they'll they'll go back to you know the status quo sooner or later which generally is true but I think in this case you know Jim was committed he got all the okays from everyone he needed and, you know, uh, the black and white costume, you know, could have been around today. But Jim, I guess, was, uh, you know, willing to, you know, give his editors a lot of, uh, you know, control and do things the way, you know, they thought was best. And uh, I said, well, can we go back to the red and blue in the 300th issue? And, you know, he was a little reluctant and possibly even hurt by the suggestion, but he, he said, sure, if that's what you want to do, go right ahead. Nice. And that's what we were originally planning. But as usual, <laughs> stuff happens. And uh, eventually, uh, we had a new editor-in-chief in place at Marvel, and that was uh, good old Tom DeFalco. You know, so he was, you know, taking over and wanting to get a a clearer picture of what was going on in all the titles. And so at one point I was in a meeting with him and he wanted to know what what our plans were for Amazing Spider-Man 300. So I proudly said, oh, well, we're we're going back to the the red and blue costume. And I I was hoping 
we could still do that. And uh, fortunately, you know, Tom had no problem with that. He was fine with that. But surprisingly, he said, that's not enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) what else would you like, sir? He was very specific. He said uh, he wanted a major new Spider-Man supervillain. Now, (laughs) think about that. Uh, You know, Spider-Man had been around, uh, obviously amazing. It was issue 300, but there was Web of Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, and Spider-Man and Marvel team-up, and on and on and on. And if you had to list the major Spider-Man villains, I would say the majority of them were created by Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, and John Romita. Right. And there were, you know, it's not that writers and artists after them didn't try to come up with major villains. There were hundreds of new villains were introduced. Yeah. And, you know, even Stan and Ramita would come up with such winners like uh, the Gibbon. And, (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know, there's uh, tons of them. And uh, I loved all of them. (laughs) I would use them whenever I could. But, Major supervillain. Okay. Well, all right. Now, uh, again, here we here we were. We had plans uh, in place. We were going to do this. We we're going to do that. And uh, something happens, and now we have to, you know, start all over, rethink what we're going to do. I discussed it with uh, the, the amazing Spider-Man writer David McAuley, who I have to give a lot of credit uh, to, who always. <laughs> always cool, calm, and collected in a crisis. Uh, you know, whenever I would call him up, uh, whether it was on the wedding stuff or, you know, issue 300, okay, what do we do? And and, and, we, and he would just focus on whatever needed uh, to be done. And I, I think I was thinking, well, you, since the costume was sort of already theme and, and part of what we were heading towards, it seemed to make sense to do something along those lines. And, and since I wanted to go back to the red and blue costume, uh, it made sense. Well, and I always thought the costume would you know, look better on a villain. And I knew uh, David had, had, had been planting seeds in a couple of other previous comics where he had had plans for having a woman in the uh, alien costume. Okay. So we were talking about, you know, possibly doing that. And I think under normal circumstances, if this was just for a non-anniversary issue of Amazing or that, we would have done that storyline. But in my head, <laughs> vibrating around in the, uh, was it had to be a major new Spider-Man villain. Uh, I did what uh, most cowardly editors do in situations like this. I said, okay, David, I think we got something there. But in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, we don't, you know, we don't want Spider-Man in the 300th issue uh, fighting a girl. <laughs> not, not, to, not to be sexist or anything, but this was also a different time back right. then. Yeah. And eventually, uh, yeah, there have been women in uh, that alien costume, uh, several times now. But back then, what what I was thinking was, no, we want the scariest, meanest, toughest uh, new villain ever, you know, to come along. 
And I thought, you know, if we put that alien costume on some, you know, big, you know, much bigger, scarier looking guy than Peter Parker, he'll have all of Spider-Man's powers, but he's bigger and stronger. Yeah. There's your threat. There you go. So I knew, having worked with Tom before, and, you know, that our, our thinking was very similar on this, that if I pitched David's idea, you know, of the woman in the costume to him, uh, he would suggest what I just <laughs> Right, yeah. Said. You know, it's almost like what lawyers do. They never ask a witness uh, a question they don't know the answer to already. So I wasn't going to ask Tom DeFalco something that I, I, I didn't know. I didn't have a good idea what he would say. And, and sure enough, uh, he said, make it a, a guy and have him be bigger and tougher, et cetera, et cetera. I, I went back to David. Again, David, the total professional, no problem. He, he, was, uh, he came up with the idea of using uh, Eddie Brock mm -hmm. to wear the costume. Uh, he came up with the name Venom. We were able to uh, set it up, so uh, he made his mini debut in Amazing 299. Uh, and, of course, in the 300, we had our what we were hoping you know, to be a major new Spider-Man villain. And uh, who would have guessed that he actually did become one? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, again, when I start to write a character, when I, I, or in time when I write a character, I try to utilize the unique elements of that character. Uh, now, in Spider-Man, you have the webbing, you have the wall crawling, you have his acrobatics, all this stuff. But the one thing that no one else had, and uh, these days I have no idea if anyone else does, but was his spider sense. This early warning spider sense, if he's ever in danger, he's learned to react to it like a, a, a doctor hitting your knee with a, a, a mallet and your, your knee had leg jerk, jerking up. It was a, a reflex, he would, and you know, he would dodge from the, away from the danger. He's so used to that. I thought, well, what if there was a character who wanted to kill him, but didn't trigger that warning system. And in existence was the, the alien symbiote from the black costume that uh, I believe Wheezy Simonson had gotten rid of, got away from, from Peter in, I think it was web number one. But it was still in the Marvel Universe, and it had been established that it didn't trigger Peter's spider sense. So I thought, what if this symbiote that would hate Spider-Man for rejecting him, you know, got together with a character who wanted to kill Spider-Man. And I came up with the Eddie Brock character, who was a weightlifter who hated Spider-Man because he blamed Spider-Man for losing his job. It was really his fault because he, he, had, it was, he had been a reporter who uh, turned in a story that was based on hearsay it was wrong, and he got fired because of it, but he hated Spider-Man. So what if these two things, beings that hate Spider-Man got together and didn't trigger Spider-Man's spider sense. So I started setting that up in Web of Spider-Man with two subplots where one, Peter Parker's standing at a, at a, in front of a subway track and someone pushes him in front of it and he gets out but it didn't trigger his spider sense. And another one that I, I plotted and someone else ended up scripting, uh, Spider-Man's on the edge of a building, a hand comes out of a window, grabs him and slings him off the building. Again, it doesn't trigger his spider sense. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to explore that. And that's how I set it up in web and, and ended up doing it in Amazing Number 300. It's what if there's a character whose sole purpose is to kill Spider-Man and he doesn't trigger that spider sense. What does that do to Spider-Man's, to Peter Parker's uh, confidence, to his sense of well-being? 
what what does that do to him emotionally? My original concept for Venom was completely different for the character that became Venom. It was originally a woman. I was going to have a woman who was pregnant. Uh, her, her water broke or something. She was about to be taken. She needed to go to the hospital. Uh, her husband took her out, went out, uh, was trying to flag a cab to get her to the hospital. The cabbie was looking up at Spider-Man fighting something from, um, oh gosh, what was this graphic novel that he did about the, the, the living... Uh, living pharaoh who became a living planet later on but anyway in a fight and the cabbie hit the husband killed him the woman miscarried because of the shock she went into catatonic uh, uh, um, into catatonia uh, and when she came out of it she realized you know she'd lost her child she lost her husband and she blamed it she, she was mentally disabled mentally disturbed and and, and blamed it all on Spider-Man, then she joined with the, um, the symbiote and became Venom, who wanted to kill Spider-Man. That was her motivation, because she blamed him for the death of her child and her uh, husband, which is maybe a stronger motivation. Uh, when I was switched over to Amazing Spider-Man and Jim Salakrup was the editor, he, he, I, he wanted something big for issue 300 of Amazing. I suggested this villain that I had been setting up in web. He liked it, but he didn't know that um, uh, readers would accept a, a female character uh, standing toe-to-toe with Spider-Man. Now, this was a long time ago. Don't blame Jim. <laughs> but uh, he suggested if I made it a, a male character. So doing that didn't change what I wanted to do with the whole thing about the spider sense. So I came up, that's when I came up with the Eddie Brock character and his motivation. So maybe the original motivation was a little stronger. I think the motivation that Eddie had, because he was also a little uh, disturbed and, 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 you know, focused on something that wasn't quite, basically blaming someone else so he wouldn't have to take the blame himself. And at that wall up there that got stronger and stronger as, as he tried to, to kill what he blamed so he wouldn't have to, to blank him himself. Okay, so we tackle number 300? This is what everyone's sure. listening for. I mean, honestly, I feel like we could spend the entire episode just talking about this issue and just very quickly summarizing the rest because, like, this is this is the meat. This is what you come for. This is the good stuff. Um, this is probably the best issue of the bunch. It's the most well thought out. It's, uh, the I would say, the best illustrated. It had the clearest sense of what it wanted to be. It has only one or two things that I that always strike me as a little lame, but otherwise, I think the artwork is so on point. Um, yeah, it, it's the book where it truly becomes McFarlane's. You know, he's not hampered by an inker who's doing something different. He's just what he wants to be, and um, it's got so many memorable moments. It's got very memorable artwork that's been um, used on different trading cards throughout the years. Like this is this is the big time. This is yeah. It's uh, it was quite a, a pleasure to to revisit this one. I'm always uh, I'm always happy to uh, to. I, I love these classic early Venom stories, and I think I mentioned in the other episode that one where they're on the beach is my favorite Venom story. But this one mm-hmm. is is such a great introduction to a character. There are a few things in here that um, you already. Let me see. According to my notes here, you already pointed out that McFarlane inks himself. Um, I find it really odd that the big reveal that Venom is Eddie Brock and Peter knows him like he's heard of this guy before but we've never heard mm-hmm. of this guy before no but apparently he is actually a world class reporter this guy people he was in circulations that were being read by the millions people loved him 
And uh, that's a side of Eddie Brock that we forget about. We do. I, and it's it's a shame, right? Because and I think, you know, people usually focus on the fact that he is a bodybuilder and they kind of forget that he actually could was a smart guy. Yeah, they kind of dumb him down because he's a bodybuilder. They get this uh, the stereotype of the big beefy guys with no brains. But this guy has mm-hmm. the brains. He's an he's a skilled reporter, an excellent writer, and he's got uh, all these muscles to boot. He's he's quite a threat. Absolutely. What I think is also very interesting, and it's something I often forget, is that, you know, Spider-Man's not in his red and blues when he fights Venom for the first time. So their fight is, you know, black on black. Like, it's interesting as a visual, because every other fight after this, for the most part, is going to have Spider-Man in his classic costume. Um, And then it's a very easy juxtaposition between the two. But it's interesting in the first appearance, like, he's... He's wearing his black costume that Black Cat made for him. And then seeing them fight each other is actually more effective because you can see how much bigger Venom really is in comparison because they are essentially wearing the same clothes. Right. I mean, one of them is made out of cloth and one of them is made out of symbiote. But otherwise, that's all it is. And seeing that this, you know, this interesting, even the, the lighting and the way that they kind of draw the blues because certain creators make the costume look more blue than black. Yeah. Um, especially during like Maximum Carnage, the costume basically was blue. Like it wasn't even a black costume anymore in terms of the way they lit it. But here, it the um, the lighting effects is really gentle. Um, so it really kind of accentuates the blackness. Yeah, I love the uh, the death trap that Eddie puts Spider Man in, tying him to the bells in the church, waiting for the mallet to just smash his head. I think it's such a <laughs> a brilliant thing. Uh, it's goofy. It's totally comic book. But it's a lot of fun, and it also references just back to uh, back to what is it? Web of Spider-Man number one, where um, yeah, Eddie, uh, where Peter loses the symbiote the first time. Now, if we really want to talk about Goofy, the way that he finally gets one up on on, on Eddie Brock is the goofiest. Um, <laughs> right. Getting him to expend all of like you know the self-generated webs so that he's weak enough that he could just fall down. It's funny. It obviously doesn't really play later, but at the time like you know they're making up the rules for this brand new character they've created, it works. And every appearance they kept adding new things or new d- dimensions and further developing him. But here it works. Like it's it's a little goofy, but it also makes sense within the logic that they present in the story. The fact yeah. that, you know, Peter used the symbiote and remembers what it felt like to, you know, use all the webbing. And so, yeah, no, this is this is great. And then uh, even the, like that last page of The Legend Begins Anew with, you know, McFarlane finally getting to do Spider-Man in his classic red and blues. It's so great. And, like, there's so much detail. I love a lot of these sequences where you have, um, you know, the city beneath them, the way that it's lit, um, some really great effects. There's, I mean, all throughout this issue, there's so many things you can point at as being just amazing artwork. This is... This is probably one of his best. Uh, and well, and he just gets better. I think that this is this is one of his best, but there's definitely room for improvement, and he does improve. Even in this one book, I think the later issues yeah. um, just gets his a sense of uh, his sense of depth and the sense of pacing. And I think he works with an assistant to do a lot of his backgrounds in the later in some of these other issues. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah. So I also want to point out that this is uh, the first time that we see. Felix the cat in an issue mm. <laughs> and I I didn't realize this you apparently knew this was a thing already but I just realized reading through this book since I've I've never really read these issues back to back like this I've just kind of sporadically read them here and there but um, Todd McFarlane puts a little Felix the cat drawing in every issue 
I don't think he did it with the <laughs> chance issues. I couldn't find it, at least, but this is the first time that I see a Felix the Cat. It's on page 206. It's on Ben Grimm's robe. Mm, that's right. Uh, do you know the reason behind this? I actually don't. I don't remember. Neither do I. I didn't look it up. I should have done that. Another thing about this one is uh, this is uh, a, a pretty big... Like there's there's other things happening as I mean Venom's appearance is big enough, but you also have um, Peter and MJ are moving. Yes, and that's going to make a big difference going forward. They move to the Bedford Towers. That introduces you know a, a new locale for them. Um, they have you know the the security and the the doorman who will make inappropriate thoughts about um, how Mary Jane's <laughs> legs look good, which is really weird to read it now because it's like ooh, you no, can't well, write that now. It's not just the legs. Like it, there's innuendo in that one comment yeah. like we have to we'll have to go uh well i'll point that out when we get to it because it's actually a really really funny line um but there's innuendo in this issue if you go to page 181 and um peter's down on himself because he d- doesn't like mary jane's thing saying why don't you try uh, fashion photography and he's like i don't know how to do that this, i just feel goofy so mg takes off her shirt to make her make him feel better <laughs> and the line is in the text box slowly peter's spirits begin to rise <laughs> yeah i love it <laughs> terrible yeah it's, um it's one great. thought is interesting i i know that they didn't really have any other choice but it's interesting that the cover to this volume is obviously the cover of 300 but um for a um and uh, a collection called venom he's not on the cover because yeah. there were no venom covers in this year oh yeah yeah because he's interesting. only in one issue and that's another thing, is that we have this awesome new villain, and he's introduced and disposed of in one issue. You can't get away yep. with that these days. To be fair, it was a double-sized issue. Right. Two issues then, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you get a lot of them. Like, it's, it, 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 honestly, and I think, I feel like, you know, it is one of those things of less is more, and it made people want him back, you know, because oh, they didn't sure. get him back the next month. Yep. Yeah, I just didn't realize the uh, that, you know, this is an action-packed issue. So much happens, but it's only one issue. Yep. Yep. Well, number 301 starts us off a new story, The Sable Gauntlet. Uh, and uh, the cover reflects issue number 300, except instead of being in black, he's in his classic red and blue to let everybody know. And same within the corner box, he's back in his classic du- it duds that Spider-Man mm-hmm. is back. Uh, the way that we we know them, it's kind of a, a new th- a new thing. So this is cool. Now, let's see here. This the Sable Gauntlet. This guy named Frank Cruz hires the Wild Pack to test out a security system, state of the art security system, and he's not satisfied with their results. So he kind of coerces Silver Sable to go through the security system herself. And. Uh, there's, uh, he has ulterior motives as to why he wants her to do that. Yes, he does, because he's secretly a Nazi. Yeah, it's funny how those Nazis will just kind of pop up here and there to cause problems. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because like 
the idea of bringing a Nazi into Spider-Man's book doesn't feel very Spider-Man, but by making it a Silver Sable story, it does because it's a character that kind of operates in his orbit. Um, I like I like Silver Sable. I liked when uh, Defalco kind of first brought her in with friends. So I like kind of seeing how they develop her, how Michelani handles her. Um, so I like that part, and for the most part, like it's a fun issue. It's quick and easy. Um, you have this subplot kind of nagging in the background of this guy looking for Peter, and it ends up offering him a job. Um, it's it's interesting. It starts this this plot line of this uh, this Nazi and, and Silver Sable wanted to kind of find him. But uh, yeah, and I, I really thought this was a strong issue. I actually thought that it was a lot of filler. Really? Yeah, I I found that there was a lot of there's a lot of talking, there's a lot of conversations. Um, there isn't actually a whole lot that goes on. It's set it's setting up a bunch of stuff. It's a lot of setup. Mm. It's setting up Peter Parker going back to school. Um, it's setting up Peter, this guy looking for Peter to give him a job offer. It's setting up the Silver Sable plot line, and that's kind of it. And this this Nazi plot line, in fact, doesn't even. Uh... Oh yeah, I guess it gets concluded in the next issue, right? Or no, it doesn't get concluded in the next issue. It, it continues. No, not it's right not away. Even re- it's not even revisited. So it's kind of dangling for a little bit, but which is again of the time. But it definitely it concluded this chapter of it, and yep. then you get to see more of it as we go along. Uh, I can see I can see where you're coming from, but I and maybe it is still filler, but I found it filler that moved things along. It set right. things up. It you know it, it was a setup issue more than a filler issue to me, if that makes sense. Like yeah. things were happening, you just didn't get the pay all the payoffs yet. Sure, sure. Okay, well uh, we can go on to number three hundred two. You want to take us through this one? Ugh, I don't like this one. Okay, um, I'll, <laughs> let me t- let me uh, sum it up in one sentence. Okay. Peter visits his new potential job in Kansas, but Royce Nero becomes a supervillain and tries to kill him. Yep. That's uh, <laughs> that's all you need to know. It, it, you know, I, I give credit to um, Michelani for trying different things. You know, so like in this issue, he's trying different things. Does it all work? No. You got a, a guy bitten bit by a jackrabbit, and like, <laughs> which is... You know, obviously, you know, we're already reading about a eradicated spider, so it's not that crazy. But but you know what? The point of this issue, it, it's basically a what if. It's a what if Peter was bitten by it, but didn't want to have anything to do with that responsibility. And that's what we see yeah. in this character of Wes Cassidy. He gets bit by a radioactive jackrabbit. Obviously, it's supposed to be an allegory um, because of the radioactivity, but he decides that he's he wants to hide it. He doesn't want to put himself out there to help people. So I thought that True. was, that's, that was kind of a cool little concept there that they just kind of explored a little bit here and then, and then did away with it. Yeah. One of my favorite parts of the issue is page 246 with uh Sandman getting approached by Silver Sable, just because I love that de- development for Sandman. I love how they approach that character. And until it was re- very rudely, uh, taken away from everyone by John Byrne and Amazing Spider-Man, I think, number one or two uh-huh, yeah. in 1998. But um, it was such a great um, direction to go with the character and actually did something with him and added something different to the Marvel Universe by making him a, you know, a reformed villain-turned-hero uh, or mercenary. Um, it's not like that hasn't happened in the Marvel Universe with you know characters like Hawkeye, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, so it was nice to kind of see it happen. And so I, I like that development, which really go- uh, goes a long way in the next issue. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that's all I need to say about this one. So we can move <laughs> on to 303. Sure. What a great cover this, this is, one is. Oh, it's it's great. Like, there's just the detail on Sandman. It's 
it's fantastic and Spider-Man and Silver Sable, like it just, it really works. It's action packed. It really makes you want to pick up the issue. And I love that McFarland is putting the little um, issue numbers in webbing in the corner boxes, in the UPC box. Absolutely. And he does it throughout this whole book, I think now. It's interesting on pages, I guess, 258 and 259 is MJ has a lot less curl in her hair here. True. Yeah, that's true. Like, I'm just curious if that was like, Someone told him maybe you know dial that back, make it more straight. That's more on the character model that we're used to. Like I'm most curious about like you know what kind of things were happening because his his MJ earlier, as you mentioned, was so definitively curly. Yeah. Um, that it's it's you know and these are it's a big shot of her too. It's not like it's just a small little shot. Like you have bigger shots of her. It's a chance to really kind of do more there. Um, but the real brunt of this issue is you know Silver Sable hires uh, Sandman and then hires. Um, Spider-Man as well to go after the Nazi, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very um, there is a very violent moment, or just it really pushing the boundaries of what I would imagine you could have done in '87 or '88 when you have Silver Sable with the gun in the Nazi's mouth, just saying "Give me an excuse." Like that's that's pretty visceral. Like it's not just pointing it at his head; like it's in his mouth. Yeah, it, yeah, it's very true. We get a little cameo on page two sixty four from Todd McFarlane's Incredible Hulk on a newspaper a little newspaper image that's right yeah that's just referencing that he that was the book that he was on before he was on spider-man mm-hmm. uh and then also there is also a reference that robertson joe robbie robertson is in the hospital right now that's right the tombstone has broken his back so that's going on in another book that we don't get any sort of indication about really other than this one reference which is too bad because yep. that is such an amazing story True. Um, issue, sorry, page two seventy eight. Classic misdirection. You have the, you know, people looking at pictures, and <laughs> yeah. it's a smoky, dark room, and it's it sounds like it's all menacing and scary, and it's not. Nope, it's not. And we're not going to find out in the next issue because the next issue is an annual Amazing Spider-Man Yay. annual number twenty two. Um, I don't even know what it's called. I guess it's the newspaper headline: Dr- Drug War Rages. Now, every single time we've done one of these uh, Spider-Man books the, that we've talked about, these 90s ones, uh, Mark Bagley has an issue in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I didn't realize he goes back this far. But he does. He's, he's drawn Spider-Man well before the, the run that we know him for. Yeah, it doesn't look much like him, but yeah. Yeah, he's still rough. He's still new. I think it's probably the inker as well. Um, who is it? Rick Parker? No, that's yeah. the letter. His, his his Jameson looks like a Bagley Jameson. Oh, Mike Esposito is doing the inks on this one. Like, if you look at page 292 and 293, like, you can see that that's Mark Bagley's uh, oh, rendition sure. of Jameson. Like, that's yep. clearly, like, that character he had nailed from the beginning. Oh, yeah, and his Kingpin. Um, like, you can, there are definitely hints of it. His Spider-Man doesn't look like Spider-Man because, um, again, he, uh, he's, he's, we're still kind of he's still referencing John Romita yeah. um, because Todd McFarlane hasn't um, established the the sort of the spider poses that we're used to that Mark Bagley really latches onto when he does his Spider-Man especially with the big eyes so yeah, yeah. I can honestly say I read it and I already forgot all of it <laughs> it's kind of a nothing issue the only thing notable about this issue is that um, it's the introduction to Speedball 
Yeah, and, and you have Ditko on it. And Yep, and Ditko does a short story in here. And um, there are these giant robots that are, or, that are just, I guess, suits of armor that people wear that are carried over from a Punisher annual number one that came out, I think, this month as well. And uh, mm. there's also an evolutionary war story in here that yeah. really doesn't make any sense because you haven't read any of the other issues. No. And then uh, one thing I do like is on 315, a great um, pinup by Larry Lieber. Yeah. He does good stuff. It's really solid. Like, it's a really nice... It's interesting in a book like this, in the middle of the McFarlane era, to suddenly go back to pre-McFarlane webbing, because then you realize what, what it used to look like right, and how it just... Yeah. It's, it's transformed forever now. <laughs> it is, yeah. Okay, so this Ditko issue, it is... Um, it's so Ditko. <laughs> it is. He crams the panels in here. He uh, he does a, f- a fairly good job with his pacing and such, but there are some moments where it just doesn't work. So if you go to page three eighteen, yeah. Um, okay, so in the top panels, there's this guy with a mask, and he's like, to he's gonna kill Speedball's mom, and then in this middle panel, all of a sudden he's underground, and it's like, what is he <laughs> doing down there? And I can just see, I think is Ro- is it Roger Stern that does the script on this? Uh, was yeah. it him? Yeah, Roger Stern's looking at it and is like, what the heck? I have to come up with some dialogue to explain how the heck he's down there or why he's down there. So the dialogue is, don't know what that bouncing thing is, but I escaped through this trap door. <laughs> it's yeah. jammed. Now I'm stuck. <laughs> it's like, it it really, really didn't work. And that's the Marvel method right there for you. Yeah, for the most part, I would say it, it's, it looks... Uh, remarkably more modern than I would have expected. Yeah, yeah. Well, D- Ditko was uh, pretty good at keeping up with the times. It isn't until like through the through the nineties that he, I feel like he really started to show his age. True. Uh, we have one of the one of the things I used to like about annuals is you have the uh, uh, layout of the Bedford Towers apartment that Peter and MJ just moved into, which is kind of a nice little fun detail. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really good. <laughs> It's it's surprisingly like architectural. Oh yeah, which is much more than we usually get. Like usually it'd be like a you know the, I always think of the the classic uh, Jack Kirby cutaway of the Baxter Building, right? Um, this is much more professional. To, I I want to see more of these kind of things these days. Like I wish that in mm. modern comics we get more of these uh, these pinups or just just yeah. the, the peripheral stuff that we don't really need to have, but it's kind of cool. True. On page 334 and 335, we have two more pinups. Uh, again, another one by Larry Lieber, which looks great. It's supposed to be never-before-published Spidey covers. And then a great Bob Layden one, which just looks fantastic. It sure does. Love it with the with the arms and the glass falling at you. Um, like he's going to come crashing right to So I guess it's like a point of view of Dr. Octopus. Yeah. And what he's seeing. Super compelling. Like it's, I, And I feel like you could slap that on a comic book now and it would still feel modern. Uh, I think so. Absolutely. So Amazing Spider-Man 304, we got the Black Fox returning. I do love myself some Black Fox. Yep. And this introduces something that is woefully forgotten most of the time. The idea that um, Spider-Man, uh, sorry, Peter Parker was an author, after a fashion. Uh, that a, a book of his collection of his, uh, his photos of Spider-Man were actually put out under the name Webs, which was, I always thought was a great concept, a cool idea. It made Peter a little bit more popular a little bit more uh successful gave him money uh in a way that he hadn't before because he was going on a book tour it also allowed peter to kind of go to different places and not just be in new york and get involved in different adventures so i really like the concept and i think it's it's really well kind of put together 
Um, I will say um, the artwork on here, so I guess you have Joe Rubenstein doing the finishes, and it's extremely evident. Yeah, it's very, very different. Joe, um, again, reigns him in. I, I would say he kind of goes too far. Like he, he, he start to, to lose what makes McFarland special in terms of some of the dynamic like details on, on the faces, et cetera, that really kind of add more definition. Um, this is also a big issue because you have the introduction of Jonathan Caesar, who's everyone's fav- favorite creep. You also have um, uh, MJ and Peter going to Disneyland. That was fun. <laughs> which is kind of a fun little thing. Yeah, it, it's just interesting seeing Peter out of New York in a totally different environment. Um, but it's fun. I like I like seeing that. And again, I, it's one of those things where it's interesting to have Spider-Man kind of traveling to L.A. and kind of being there and people not really knowing who he is, which I thought was cool. And then having MJ being like, no, no, this is like a tie-in for our, for the book, which is cool. And then at the end, you have the Prowler show up. Like, I really enjoyed this. Even though the artwork wasn't quite up to snuff, I still enjoyed the issue. Yeah, this was a fun one. It, it's just um, the Black Fox is, is always brought in to kind of relieve some tension because he's not a serious villain. No. So I think that after having some some heavy-handed issues with uh, with the Nazis and whatever, then we're going to have something light. In fact, yeah. David Michelini keeps it fairly light uh, leading up to this Jonathan Caesar story because all of a sudden it just gets, it just gets blown wide open. I have a question about 305. So, okay. so it's when it's when the book is twice a month. So there, that's pro- probably why McFarlane's not inking it himself. So the inking here is by Magnificent Seven, and it says see Salicrup's section for explanation, which you don't have reprinted here. Right. So I'm curious what the hell the explanation was. Yeah. Well, one of you listeners, if you have this issue, uh, I, it they reprint they reprint the letters pages in the omnibus, right? Oh, you know what? I have the omnibus in my basement, so I could have answered that question myself. Well, why don't you go and do that? Or somebody out there who is listening, let us know what it is. Comment on Facebook or something to let us know why there is a Magnificent Seven. Uh, mm-hmm. well, it's, it's interesting to read the book because it definitely has better inking, I would say, than the last issue, even though it sounds like there's a lot of people working on it. Yeah, and then you can tell from page to page that there are different inkers inking different different pages because some of them have a lot more detail and some of them some of them don't. So, but uh, yeah, this was a this was a pretty fun issue as well. Um, we get a nice cheesecake uh, beach scene with Mary Jane, which it becomes a um, something that Todd McFarlane I think is a little bit known for as well. Yeah, no, unfortunately, I guess. And uh, one thing, so I'm a big fan of Johnny Carson and the Tonight Show. So Johnny Carson shows up, but it's a pretty hideous likeness. Oh man, is it ever? It's just, it's awful. Yeah. And uh, now this is a little detail, but it bugs me. But I'm sure no one in the world would have cared or noticed when they go on the Tonight Show and they uh, there's there's a man who talks to them as they're leaving. It's not Mr. Cordova. It's Freddie de Cordova. Uh, so there should be a DE there. It's de oh. Cordova, not Cordova. There you go. Huh. Again, no one in the world cares, but <laughs> you care, and that's all that matters. Well, I, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, of of the Johnny Carson show, and I listen to the uh, Carson podcast, and uh, he's a, a frequent person they talk about. So okay, uh, the minute I saw it, I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would stand out for sure. It's, it's you know it's a fun issue. I, I again it's 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 just like the you know the issue previous. You know it, you have the Prowler being invo- you know involved now, which is fun because you have Todd McFarlane uh, experimenting with capes. 
again, you have more of Peter kind of being a fish out of water, but getting to try different things now that, now that he's in L.A. Uh, you have more of Black Fox. Like, gen- just generally, I, I thought this was a very enjoyable and fun issue, uh, and it felt very classic Black Fox. And there's a reason why the Prowler is in this issue, so I want to play this clip from your interview with David Michelini on the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Working with Todd was a joy, an absolute joy. He, he, he drew the stories according to the plots. He told the stories clearly. Um, uh, there was no ego in evidence. Uh, he drew great, interesting stuff. I loved writing from his pencils. Um, did he get more attention to me? You betcha. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's hard because cause he's, he's become a superstar and, and, and people loved his work. And, you know, the writing got a, a bit of a short shrift there, I, I think. But I also think that's natural. Uh, comics are a visual medium. A lot of people read them or buy them for, for, the, for the artwork. It, I remember writing, when I first started writing... Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man and Todd McFarlane was, was assigned to it. I had never met Todd. And I always try to open up to the penciler specifically uh, what kind of things they would like to do. And if I if it works with what I want to do, I try that because if you've got a penciler who's drawing what he or she enjoys drawing, they probably usually do a better job of it. They have more fun. And, and I was told, I went through the editor, and I was told that he really didn't want to he had just started the book and he didn't want to kind of feel like he was, seemed like he was taking control or anything like that, which I thought was very professional. And he just asked, maybe he could like to draw a character with a cape. <laughs> I thought, well, gee, that's, I don't know. I, are there any characters with capes? So I did a Prowler story for him. I hear you moving around. Did you go look for that omnibus? I have the omnibus in my hand. I'm in the middle of trying to find the exact, uh, exact moment. I'm trying to find the right issue to make sure I can I can see what the explanation is. Oh, you know what? They do not reprint it here. Okay. Well, there you go. I guess that's only in the Silver Age where they actually uh, print the, um, the letters pages. pages. It's not in the Modern Age. Well, that's too bad. Someone will have to dig out their that single issue for us. I know, right? Put out, put out the call. <laughs> well, do you want to go on to the next one, Humbugged? Ugh. <laughs> uh, so Amazing Spider-Man 306, yeah, it's humbugged. Um, the cover is a you know an homage to Action Comics number one. Yep. Um, with Superman, um, that first page with Spider-Man webbing up, um, I guess is someone's uh, like video camera. camera. Yeah, TV camera. That's that is an awesome shot. It is. Like I really enjoy like the de- the level of detail involved there to make the webbing look right and not just look like a weird hodgepodge. Um, like I-, I can't imagine how much time it took. Maybe it took them no time at all. But how hard would it be to ink this image here, where you have the webs, but then you also have Spider-Man's own costume that has a lot of webs on it underneath, and to make all of it like line up perfectly and uh, it just it's it- this takes a lot of work. Is it possible that they overlaid the image? That's very possible. I would imagine that um, at least when he penciled it, he penciled Spidey without the webs, and then maybe he overlaid the webs, but then he'd have to do it on some sort of other, uh, I don't know, transparency. Like, this is is before computers, so... um, Yeah, I don't know. It's a a really compelling effect. Like, it looks great. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. The issue, I mean... It, it, there's a lot of plot lines I like that are slowly being developed. You have Jonathan Caesar slowly kind of being creepy. You have um, 
Felicia Hardy looking for Peter kind of wanted to rekindle and trying to find him, trying to find his now that he's moved out of his apartment. So like there's there's elements that are that are entertaining. And then you have Humbug who's not entertaining at all. <laughs> yeah. He's so he's just silly. But he's again used for comic relief. He's the calm before the storm here. Uh, he's not at, at any sort of threat. Um, and I just love that uh, Peter Parker is threatening him with destroying bugs. That's how he gets humbugged, too. <laughs> so one last thing to bring up in this issue is a, a subplot that's kind of building, which obviously comes to a head with the next issue, uh, is that you have the idea that, you know, this this character comes face-to-face basically with someone who looks just like him, and then he gets knocked out, and at the very end of the issue, you find out it's the chameleon, and they're kind of bringing him back in a much more kind of sinister way, setting up the next issue. And that's kind of a, you know, a, a cool way of doing it and uh, I, I, this is something I miss about comics these days is uh, when they would tease what's coming next actually all at the end of the issue not just in like a letters page or whatever just kind of saying guess who Spidey meets in Chicago be here in two weeks for the thief who stole himself like I, I kind of like that it's true it is a it's kind of a lost art I, I, I do like that too and it's that's the cliffhanger it makes me want to read the next issue especially if i were buying this on the newsstand what the chameleon in the next issue yeah like it's well exciting. you also might be saying who's the chameleon <laughs> right because I, I if you really think about it like how many chameleon stories have we really had over the years and especially up to this point has he had any that have been really kind of especially noteworthy in terms of like that's that's the chameleon story like a lot of the you know there aren't very many, but I think the, the chameleon stories that are usually noteworthy are much more modern than this. Like you have, you know, him bringing him working for Harry Osborn, bringing back Spider Man's parents, and then the kind of climactic chapter of that. Well, that's years after this. True, but you know he's one of those mainstay villains. And if you were, especially in the '80s, growing up with like the Marvel Handbook, um, the Guide to the Marvel Universe, or what? No, sorry, the official handbook to the marvel universe and you were yeah. like looking at all those spider-man's villains like they're you you know who all these guys are um yeah, i'd say I, i'd say i'd yeah, get more excited about chameleon than about chance i don't know man <laughs> <laughs> i would be oh, well it's because it, again like yeah he chameleon he was in amazing spider-man one right so he's always going to be the kind of cemented as you know the most classic and like not most classic but he's like the first of the supervillains that spider-man's ever faced so yeah. he's always going to kind of be that one but i mean other than being first is he really that notable for a lot of things um and i was kind of saying no like I, I if i was to go look at the i guess the marvel chronology project or something like that to kind of look up you know chameleon appearances up until this point how many has he really had I don't know. I mean, I haven't read much Spidey in the '70s. I wonder. I wonder if he pops out quite a bit here and there. But uh, yeah, that'd be an interesting thing to find out. Maybe I should go and do that. I'm um, just. I mean, it's it's a it's a curious thing. I'm sure no one actually cares. But <laughs> you know, it's just. Yeah, just think about it. Because again, we all know the chameleon. But like, how many chameleon stories can we really put our finger on? Like, that's that's telling to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think I one that stands out to my mind is one where he is committed to. Um, Ravencroft. This is like yeah, the that's 90s by JM. Yeah, that's JM DeMatteis uh, in Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. And Luke Ross, I think, draws that. And I, I like that story. That was good. Okay, let's keep on going to Amazing Spider-Man number three hundred seven. This one's called The Thief Who Stole Himself. And here, Peter's in Chicago for a signing. Uh, and yep, the chameleon is in this issue. He's also there for some reason in Chicago. 
Uh, there seems to be a theme of all of these villains who try to go to other cities to try and get away from Spider-Man, but then Spider-Man just happens to be there because we saw that with the Fox in the last issue as well, or two issues ago. But anyway, um, just sorry, can I, can I interject one quick point that yep. again doesn't matter, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Okay. So this issue uh, that with that climactic one, not not the 307, but 306. So that was published in 1987. So, uh, sorry, 88, October 88, apparently. But uh, his prior appearance uh, in actual continuity before this um, was back in 1978, 10 years earlier, in Amazing Spider-Man 186. So it's been quite a long time. Wow. Then that was his... Was that his only Spider-Man appearance, or was that his just his last appearance? Like, he wasn't anywhere. Last appearance, uh, total appearance. He was, he was in an issue of Marvel Tales, but it was just a reprint. Uh, he was in an Electric Company magazine, but again, that's not that's current like, continuity. Yeah. He was in he was in Ohatmu, so there was in one issue of Ohatmu he did show up just as a, as an entry. Uh, he was in the first Marvel Masterworks, um, which collected Amazing Spider-Man one to ten, and then Amazing Spider-Man three hundred six. So right. there was a long period, and I actually as I'm looking through, there's only a, a handful of books he was ever in, and I, I didn't know this at all, but apparently after Amazing Spider-Man one and fifteen, he made a bunch of appearances in Tales of Suspense and Tales to Astonish, which I actually had no idea about. Yes, I just talked about those. Um, with Alex for our Hulk um, uh, episode 2B or was it 1-2A I think it was episode 2A that came out a couple weeks ago so check that out yeah the chameleon was working with the leader wow so it's interesting so just if you just go by Amazing Spider-Man on its own he appeared in issue 1 15 the first annual and then not again until issue 80 and then not again until issue um, 181 186 and then this one Wow, that's, yeah, that's actually only, you can count them all on two hands. It's kind of crazy, right? Like, and again, <laughs> yeah. he's, like, we, we, we think of him, as, again, because he was the first, and this is a, such a tangent, you could probably almost cut this out, but, you know, that this is this is the chameleon, like, everyone knows him, and yet he's appeared in so little, and if you, again, he's been in a lot more books modern-wise, but in the first, like, you know, 20 years of Marvel, he really made only a handful of appearances. But you know what? He can be he can disguise himself as, as anyone. So who's to say he's not actually in every single issue of Amazing Spider-Man? Like, we just I mean, don't I, know. I felt like I, I could tell you were going to go there. <laughs> All right, okay. on, on to this actual issue. What is the chameleon doing? Okay, so he... A chameleon is here to try and get a top-secret formula to sell to foreign powers. It's a typical uh, chameleon move um, to, to just kind of sell buy stuff and sell secrets. I feel like that's kind of something that... I chameleon does although i don't know because he's only had like five appearances and i've apparently only read three of them so but yeah this is a this was actually a kind of a fun issue i just i love um the the you know who do i shoot this guy or that guy they look both the same kind of scenarios and this (laughs) and and chameleon is completely different in this one this is the issue because i think if you're listening to these in numerical order then this is not this conversation won't make sense because in our last episode the the sinister six episode chameleon makes an appearance oh that's right and i was wondering when did he get his little belt buckle and this is the issue right here he tells in his flashback here that he underwent some sort of surgery that uh, made his face blank or his his uh, features completely malleable Mm-hmm. And he, you now he has a special belt buckle where he just has to, um, I guess he he programs faces into it, and so he just has to click the button, and then his face comes up, 
uh, like his body changes to those proportions. So um, very different take on chameleon for kind of a more modern era, I guess. And that's kind of cool. No, and and this is this is something I think that needed to happen. This was an update that made the character easier to use in a lot of ways, and uh, you know, again, made him more of like mutants got you know, Mystique is a very classic shapeshifter, right? Yeah. And so now finally, Chameleon is kind of able to operate in that level, and this is something that was definitely like you know, a lot of people who grew up on comics in the kind of early '90s and on cartoons. That's the chameleon we got on the Spider-Man animated series with yeah. having that belt buckle, and that's kind of what made him, again, a much more visually arresting villain. Whereas you, if you have him having to carefully, you know, create the masks, it's not really the same, and it, you know, it doesn't allow him to uh, be more uh, instantaneous and a little bit, you know what I mean? Um, has to think everything in advance. Whereas this makes him a lot more uh, of a diabolical character in theory. Yeah, totally. Uh, this issue is pretty big for uh, Jonathan Caesar being even more creepy. Oh man, he's so creepy. <laughs> it's just, yeah, um, he. This is a. Uh, he's a more menacing villain than any of these villains who've been in this book, I think, because he feels real. Like Venom, he does. He feel, he's so over the top. Like he's he's powerful and he's muscular and he can destroy buildings or whatever. But he's in a fantasy world, whereas Jonathan Caesar is in reality um man and i think it, it it plays differently now too like it obviously would have played a certain way at the time but now especially with the kind of the the you know cultural revolution of harassment and sexual assault he seems even more scary because he's so unrelenting yeah and he's just going straight to, to huge lengths so yeah mary jane gets kidnapped at the end of this issue and let's move on to the next one number 308 before we do, one last comment, because oh, sure. um, it's always been a, a page that I always found really arresting. So um, page 406, the first page of this issue, the level of detail in the grocery I store know, right? Holy is cow. crazy. Like, like, how long did it take him to create all of this? And it looks like it looks like an actual convenience store. Like, <laughs> it or, 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 like, it's crazy. Like, he's got like, if you just look at the tomatoes and oranges, like, it's all there. Like, this looks like actual produce. It's not just, you know, like he just kind of made a vague reference. Like, the level of detail involved in this one page is insane. He goes over the top uh, in this issue. And um, one of these issues, he credits someone who's helping him with the backgrounds. And so I think that he does have some assistants that are working with him. Still incredible, regardless of who did it. Some other things I want to point out then. 410, the the skinny panel, the perspective of as we're looking down the whatever mm. tall tower in Chicago that is, uh, just is, is totally cool. Um, and then if you go over to page... Does, doesn't it feel almost Larson-esque? It almost feels like something that Eric Larson would have done. They are sort of in the same school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then go over to page 422. I really like the... Um, just the panel layouts of this one where Spider-Man busts in and there's the two professors because Chameleon is one of them and uh, and then there's the one these three skinny panels like <laughs> the, 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 the decision to make an extremely skinny panel where you only see part of Spider-Man's face and like just some of his eyes it, it's a very interesting decision and then the, the next panel underneath that where Spider-Man's throwing a spider tracer and then there's one inset panel that shows the spider tracer up close and with his other hand he's shooting some webs and then there's an inset panel showing the webs on the floor um, not exactly sure why he's doing that but it's just little unique things like that are kind of cool little touches 
to make to you know to give this a Todd McFarlane signature style instead of just I don't know a comic book. Yeah, for sure. All right, now we can move on to three hundred eight. Okay, three hundred eight is called Dread. Um, man, this was a this was a a great issue. I really like this. So Spider Man or sorry Peter um, is talking to police about you know what happened to Mary Jane she's been kidnapped he he's of course going to do something about it as Spider-Man and the trail leads to Taskmaster who doesn't actually end up having to do anything with it but we get a, a nice battle um, and Taskmaster is always one of those villains that I find interesting because it's like a he can mimic any power so he's already cool true I do find that McFarlane makes the costume for Taskmaster look stupider somehow like it's so detailed but because of how he likes to do capes, the cape looks even more ridiculous on a character that <laughs> really so. shouldn't have one. Yeah. And it's an, it's a weird touch, too, with the, the tombstones all having a Spider-Man artist. <laughs> I like that. really yeah. morbid. It's very <laughs> morbid. It's like, here's all of the, the guys who've fallen before. And <laughs> um, but, uh, but, yeah, I just like the fact also that he's the guy that um, that villains go to to get henchmen. He trains henchmen. Like, I always wondered about mm-hmm. that. But man, Jonathan Caesar in this one, he's built an apartment in his own building that is soundproof, that's like completely mm-hmm. secure, that he's going to just keep Mary Jane. And he plans to marry her, which I think is a euphemism. Yep. Because, yeah, there's like that's not his intention at all. This is this little section here with this um, these two parts where Mary Jane is missing. Are, I think these are the best issues in the book. I I like them, I think, more than the venom issue just because of the stakes now spider-man's been married for they've been married for about a i don't know over a year now Mm -hmm. in the comics i mean he's already he's already been thought to be dead he's already been abducted you know abducted for a while and now Now it's mary's turn exactly it's mary jane's turn the last panel of this of this issue is so frightening because it's peter standing in his own balcony wondering where Mary Jane is and she's in the window two floors below like she's in the same building uh, mm-hmm. afraid for her life and he has no idea that he's so close like that's a, it's just a, a great setup here the, true for storytelling yeah it's it's definitely harrowing and again the the fight with Taskmaster is cool uh, as you said there are some really real stakes um, which definitely kind of changes things um, it's interesting again to see the development and how Peter's kind of in denial about it and trying to trying to figure out what to do without freaking out too much and without kind of scaring everyone in his life about it too. And right. it's weird too for him to have to be used to, you know, her missing and having it not, you know, it's he's used to threats and dangers coming from Spider-Man. He's not used to the fact that this is seems to have no connection at all to, to Spider-Man and it doesn't. And that's that's very different for a character like him because he's a guy who's constantly blaming himself for everything and this is something he really can't blame himself for at all yeah 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 it's uh and it's i like the the fact that um like his mind automatically goes to someone's trying to get to me through mary jane and so he's like going through his his contacts or his people through the mob or you know that's what leads to the taskmaster but um yeah it's nothing to do with him so how is he supposed to find out who's behind all of this if he doesn't even know like he's completely on the wrong trail. Absolutely. Well, I guess that brings us to the next issue. Uh, so in this one, Jonathan Caesar hires Sticks and Stone to keep Spider-Man away from him. And uh, that's kind of the premise. They have a little battle. And in the end, it's Mary Jane that 
freeze herself. That's right, yes. So that's kind of a nice twist there. Um, it also brings Mary Jane kind of into the modern woman who can take care of herself. She's not, she is the damsel in distress, but that doesn't mean she's helpless. True. Um, and she's very capable all throughout this issue of warding off uh, Jonathan Caesar's attempts to get close. Like she throws the ice in his face and she tries to electrocute him and stuff like that. So um, she, she, I, I think it paints a really kind of a cool picture of, of Mary Jane here. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's different, you know, and it's not the first time she's going to hold a gun. But yeah, it's it's giving her a little bit more agency in a, in a storyline where she's been robbed of it. Yeah. Um, you know, she actually gets to participate in her own rescue. It's a big deal. And, you know, it, it reads well. It's a nice conclusion to the story. And again, it, it felt like it had real stakes. So this is the first appearance of Sticks and Stone. What do you think of these guys? I don't care at all. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, they appear a couple times throughout Michelinie's run, and I don't think we see them, like, ever again. Yeah. Or if it, we do, it, yeah. It, this is a very interesting period, right? Because, you know, after you have the, you know, the introduction of Venom, you don't have a lot of great villains being used. <laughs> and not it's not a lack of trying. I mean, David Michelinie creates a ton of new characters and new villains through his run. But none of them stick as well as Venom. They used a great, you know, a good Prowler storyline, and they have a good Sandman storyline. But they're not really, they're not villains in how they're presented there. Right. Later on, he gets to kind of, he starts bringing in like Mysterio and Lizard. But this is before we have that. So instead, like in the next issue, we're going to have, you know, uh, Killer Shrike, and yeah. that's that's uh, <laughs> that's something. So, uh, Mister Sticks, I feel like is a character of the time too, because. I don't know how he got his powers or if he's a mutant or whatever, but uh, whatever he touches gets cancer. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, cancer was just kind of, um, it was a, becoming more of a big deal in the 90s. Um, I mean, it's been around for a while, but kind of more, you'd see more and more cases of it through the 90s. And I feel like if this if this issue had been like two years later, it would have been AIDS instead. Like it just felt very like, this is the thing. We're going to, you know, that's what this is guy's going to do. This is what everyone's worried about. That's yeah. what he's going to give you. I think so. I think that's, uh, oh, yeah, I guess this is the late 80s. So, it, yeah, I mean, it, that's, I, I feel like he's definitely created of the era. And I don't even know what Stone's deal is. He doesn't turn things to stone with his touch. I don't know why they just wanted the cool name Sticks and Stones. <laughs> but there you go. Yep, that's about it. Yeah. So, nice moment at the end when they finally get uh, reunited. Yes. So, and that's a... Again, this was only two issues. I feel like modern comics would have stretched out the missing Mary Jane plot and probably amped up the, I don't know, the the torture that she goes through a little bit more in modern comics. But I felt like it was the the right pacing, and the mm-hmm. right amount for uh, for what we have here. Well, again, we kind of got that in what nine ninety nine when uh, Mary Jane was taken off the board and supposedly dead, and she was disappeared from what issue I think thirteen of Amazing Spider Man Volume Two till issue I think twenty eight or twenty nine, and uh, you know there's an abduction, she disappears, everyone, you know, yeah. the idea that she's dead and everyone has to kind of move on, and we don't really know what's going on with her, and then they finally find her. So yeah, like you're right, they 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 did do something similar in modern context, and True. they did definitely make it last over a much longer period. Um, they definitely went more for broke because they had, you know, Spider-Man had to believe she was dead until they could bring her back. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, the last issue in this book here, number 310, Shrike Force. And this is the one yeah. where he has uh, the, the credit, the background assist to Terry Fitzgerald at the bottom there. 
Which is interesting because of all the issues, I would not have thought this was the one that really required a lot of background assist. Well, I, I wonder if it's like, Terry's like, hey man, just give me credit. I've been working for you for a long time here. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I did notice um, on, issue, on, I guess, page 483, when you have him meeting the researcher, like the person working in the uh, lab. I was going to bring this up is- too. Anne Marie, I'm like, really? That's really close to Anna Maria, and she doesn't look that different. And look how, if you turn the page to 484, she's quite a bit shorter. She's, she's, a, I mean, she's not the same level of short as no. Anna Marie. But yeah, I, I was, or Anna, what's her name? Anna Maria. Anna Maria, yeah, it, it's, it's not that dissimilar, right? Like, it's interesting. We're talking about the the superior Spider-Man era character. That's right. I mean, it's it's interesting, too, because, like, you know, with a character like Spider-Man, there have been very similar things that have happened a bunch of times, like, but we just kind of forget. Like, Horizon Labs, when uh, Diane Slott brought it up, all I could think of when they did that was, wait a minute, didn't Spider-Man work in a lab in in the next chapter era? And he definitely did. But, again, it was just kind of a period that no one really remembers or likes, so no one really cares. But at that point, he was brought into a lab, just like Horizon, and then try to kind of work within it and still be able to be Spider-Man. And Horizon Labs was kind of the same thing. So, you know, it's just some things kind of latch into people's memory and some don't. Um, And then they get reused in different ways. It's just interesting that this person happens to have such a similar name and not look that different. Exactly. Yeah, that'd be a good question to ask, uh, I guess, Dan Slott, if he drew any inspiration from this character here. I mean, he does know all of continuity, right? Like, yep. he's a crazy, you know, continuity nerd, so I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, because, it, you know, 310 is not great from a villain standpoint. You know, Shrike is not exactly a great villain. However, you start to get pieces of what will inform Spider-Man's kind of status quo for a while in terms of, you know, him back, being back at school, Dr. Swan. Like, these are all things that make a difference and will be something we see going forward. Yeah. What did you think of this issue? Uh, you know, it was, it's just a filler issue. It really is. Don't get, the, the only cool thing here is that uh, the Tinkerer makes an appearance <laughs> because uh, yeah, it, it's kind of a little convoluted. We think that the villain is actually Killer Shrike, but Killer Shrike has hired the Tinkerer who is blackmailing a professor into making some power boosters for the Tinkerer who's going to sell them to the Killer Shrike. Uh, to amp up Killer Strike's powers. So, but yeah, the Tinkerer. So we just had the Chameleon, who was in the first issue of Amazing, Amazing Spider-Man. And I think the Tinkerer was was he the second issue or the third issue of Amazing Spider-Man? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was issue two. He goes way back as well, and probably has just as many appearances as the Chameleon, if at all. Well, at least up until this point, that's for sure. Yeah, it was a filler issue after this harrowing um, Jonathan Caesar ordeal. It's it's one thing I'll say though is interesting because of the way McFarlane draws. I mean, he's a great artist, and we we will say that all the time, right? Oh he's, yes, he de- and he definitely brings something special. But he is not necessarily a lighthearted artist in any way. So like his stuff is just feels darker all the time. So even when you have an issue after such a dark storyline, which in theory is a little bit lighter, it still plays dark. Well, I think that has to do with um, a he's a he's a heavy inker. He adds a lot of shadows and a lot of detail into his work. And then we have a character with a Batman cape. So a lot of the panels are just dark in general because you ha- it's surrounded with black. It's True. Black, this black cape sur- swirling around. <laughs> now it's interesting. So the Tinkerer, uh, prior to this issue, hadn't been seen in a Spider-Man comic for about seven years. Um, and, bef- and, you know, he's had only sporadic appearances. I mean, he appeared in uh, 
Let's see. The Tinkerer appeared in issue two, like we said, in 1963. He was in the first Amazing Spider-Man annual, as well as the second. And then he didn't appear for another, like, 11 years. Oh, okay. There you go. Like, he... He doesn't. He does not make a lot of appearances. And after this appearance, he actually uh, kind of goes away for a little while. Uh, well, I guess he makes two appearances in 1989 in Alpha Flight of all things and Web of Spider-Man. Then in a New Mutants issue in 1990, huh. uh, and then like a Captain America issue. Like he's all over the place, but like nothing consistent. So then it's it's a it's a big deal. It's special that he's in this issue because we don't see him very much, right? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it one of his best storylines, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, let's just round up some bonus features, then we'll close out here. We have some, um, in this epic collection, we have uh, just uh, different covers for various different trade paperbacks and omnibuses that have come out in the past. Um, a nice promotional story from Marvel Age Annual number 3, drawn by Steve Geiger and written by Jim Osley. That's cool. Stan Soapbox, where he's talking about um, getting the, bringing the marriage together, I think, and uh, I don't know, a whole bunch of things. I didn't. I didn't read it, so I can't really speak to it. Yeah. Well, I guess and it was from Amazing Spider-Man 300, so it was a bit of a. It was a special deal to have him, you know, doing a Stan soapbox in right. an anniversary issue. That's true, and it's a full page. So if you if you like Stan's writing, I'm sure it's great. What's interesting is actually in his Stan soapbox, he does talk about the first Marvel Masterworks series. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's uh, and now before I turn you loose once more. To pursue your uh, variegated activities and multifarious interests, we can't possibly end this scintillating little session without mentioning the magnificent, mag- majestic, magniloquent Marvel Masterworks series on sale now, you lucky devil, in beautiful eye-pop and hardcover editions. Now look, I'll admit they don't come cheap. They're not the kind of books you can buy with some loose change you have lying around. Admittedly, they cost less than a Ferrari, but they're not what you call a casual purchase. Uh, however, no serious Marvel fanatic, no enterprising comic book collector, no truly perceptive student of contemporary illustrated literature and sociological currents can afford to be without them. True, you may have to give up a lecture or two, like eating and having a roof over your head, but what a small <laughs> price to pay for a set of deluxe volumes of Marvel's earliest masterpieces, of the stories and illustrations that set the style for generations to come. The Spider-Man edition of Marvel Masterworks actually includes the now legendary Amazing Fantasy 15, the first appearance ever of the world's favorite wall crawler, plus the next ten issues of Amazing Spider-Man for you to read, relish, and rejoice with. Now, this is a big deal because this was an era in the 80s when very, very little got reprinted in in a trade format. Oh, yeah, this is huge. Yeah, you had Marvel Tales and such, which would be just reprints in comic form. Um, But yeah, and these were all the very first issues of, I think it says here, Fantastic Four and X-Men, and I think Avengers was on there as well. Um, yeah, it's interesting, and I, I think in one of maybe my first Tom DeFacco interview, he talked about how this was kind of done like he loved the old comics and wanted to have a way that people could enjoy them, but it was also a way of a relatively cost-effective way to make money based on material they already had, mm-hmm. um, and that it was you know it was it was also about the bottom line and about creating a prestige product that they could very quickly make money on without having to spend a lot of money on it. Now, obviously, these days, we're used to the Marvel Masterworks having a painstaking amount of restoration, and they really work on, you know, really preserving and giving you an experience that replicates the original issues as much as possible. But in the first ones, you know, it was, it was also economics. It was also this, this, this new idea to really capitalize on these amazing original issues and, uh, and do something special. And it really says something that, you know, what did I say? This is from, like, 88, 89, and the Marvel Masterworks are still going. Yeah, and it, I, I find it funny that Stan talks about how uh, about the price point and how it's this is no 
purchase for a casual buyer because uh, what they, back then they were probably like 40 bucks or something like that right who knows nowadays yeah, they're up nowadays they're up to like they're above 75 dollars each and, and climbing so we also have a pinup by arthur adams from marvel fanfare which is a cool little piece although really reflects nothing of what we read in this in this volume but right um i guess this is of that period so they had to put it somewhere uh, you had a, a nice 1988 poster by Tom McFarlane, which is pretty cool. It is. Which doesn't really look like McFarlane, though. Um, well, I mean, the webbing certainly does. The webbing, but not Spider-Man. Like, he, he doesn't really... He lacks something. Or maybe it's the colors. I don't know. But something just feels very different. Yeah, it doesn't draw the eyes the same way. Uh, maybe this is an early Todd McFarlane... It's a Yeah, that they happened to put out in 88. Yeah, I mean, he maybe did it earlier and submitted it in a portfolio or something. I don't know. True. And then we have a, um, an afterword by David Michelinie from the Omnibus from uh, Amazing Spider-Man collecting David Michelinie and Tom McFarlane's run. Then we have another afterword by Ralph Macchio. It's always nice to see more from him. Um, and that kind of uh, closes out the volume. Yeah, the afterword is all new for this epic collection. So that's kind of cool that there's all new bonus features. Um, and then, yeah, make sure you read that one from David Michelinie as well, because it's uh, got some cool information about just uh, coming on to Spider-Man and just where he where he was at the time and and how how he wrote, wrote Spider-Man and got Venom and all this kind of stuff in there. For sure, you know, and, and I, as I said, I also uh, it's always nice to read anything by Macchio because he was with Marvel for so long. He knows everyone. He knows a lot of, the, you know, kind of what was going on during these periods. He has such a unique perspective. And, uh, like, it just, he's just so interesting as a storyteller. To, and it's nice that so many of these volumes covering the period that he was kind of editing books and we're still working at Marvel, that he's being kind of brought in as the kind of de facto uh, afterward writer for that period. And uh, they're very enjoyable. And, again, as you said, all new content. So what are your thoughts on this volume as a, as a whole? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, as you said at the beginning, it's very transitional, just like the last volume. Like the, these two, you really get a sense that these these years represented by volume 17 and 18 are such a transition period yeah. from, you know, a, a, you know, a period that was marked by Stern, DeFalco, and obviously some fill-ins, but for the most part was this long period by these two creators, and it had a certain tone in terms of, you know, very street-level gang wars, that kind of stuff. And then we had Michelini, and he's kind of figuring it out, figuring out what kind of stories he wants to tell, um, how to tell a Spider-Man story that's different from writing an Iron Man story. And he def definitely does things differently, which I think set it apart and give you a, a fresh perspective. He's taking Spider-Man on the road. He's having them in, in locales that we're not used to. He's pushing Peter into new directions, having him, you know, kind of be uh, a bit more of a well-known figure because of his book. Uh, he's going back to school. So again, trying to kind of find a direction for Peter Parker and his life in a way that we haven't seen in a little while, as also trying to adjust to the fact that now there's a marriage to deal with. How, how can we use Mary Jane and, and kind of figure out how to, how to write this as a couple? Very, uh, you know, again, transitional. And you have Todd McFarlane coming on, becoming a superstar, and that changes how the book operates as well. So it's very fascinating to see how the book starts to change. It's not all perfect. It's not all, you know, clear sailing. But for the most part, it's a fairly enjoyable volume um, as you get to kind of see the maturation of McFarlane as an artist. And again, you have the first appearance of Venom, which that one particular issue, that's just a solid issue all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with all you say here. Um, I think that the 
if especially if you're a Todd McFarlane fan and you don't want to shell out for the omnibus, this is this is great to get. Um, I'm hoping that maybe second printings of this will uh, be a little bit more solid and put a few things back where they should be in terms of the production of this book. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but it's good, and I, I'm especially looking forward to volume 19 because then we'll have a really nice two-volume set of pretty much all of McFarlane's Spider-Man. Oh, absolutely. Well, and what's more interesting, I mean, is that once we have that, we have it's like a gigantic block of Spider-Man all in a row. Like we have, you know, we have 17, 18, we just need 19 and then we'll have 20, 21, 22. Like that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. All, um, a good 10 years of Spider-Man right there in Epic collection form. Like I, I would think that once they bring out volume 19, isn't that the longest stretch of consecutive volumes we'll have had? Uh, there's four consecutive, uh, there's five consecutive volumes of Thor now. Oh really? Oh, okay. Um, the first fo- the first five volumes are all out one to five, um, and then I think Hulk is getting close to that with his with the the Peter David run too. Okay. Um, oh no, I guess that only has three volumes with a fourth coming out soon. But uh, yeah, I mean that it's going to be among the the biggest streak. And then once um, once Captain America fills in the Captain volume, whatever number that one is, then we're going to get a string of I think six in a row. Oh wow. It's really ex- exciting to see it coming along, right? Like for people like we've all been there. Like a lot of us have been there since the beginning, kind of seeing the you know the beginnings of this new line, kind of dabbling here and there. And the fact that we're actually now having like really serious blocks all done is really cool. Like you can actually sit down and say, "I'm going to read six years of this book." Like that you couldn't do that before. So the the most recent, uh, sorry, the most uh, let's see, the highest numbered volume for Spider-Man right now is number twenty. What is it, 22? 22 round robin. And we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. We have 10 volumes of Amazing Spider-Man that have been released right now. So the next volume of Amazing Spider-Man will be halfway through, if volume 22 is the last volume. Which we know it isn't, because it doesn't quite get to the Clone Saga. That's always kind of, in most people's minds, kind of the de facto... Middle yep. ground, but we can't assume anything until the volume's actually published. So, as far as we're concerned, right now the the, the series goes up to volume twenty two, and we have ten out of twenty two volumes. So that's pretty, pretty darn good. cool. Yep. Now, um, do we? I I haven't looked in a while. Is there is there a solicited volume that coming up soon, or is it going to be a while? Um, we there is no Amazing Spider Man on the, ske- uh, the schedule yet. But the next round of um, of releases should be they should start being leaked to Amazon pretty soon, like by the end of this month or early November. And okay, that means that we might see some amazing Spider-Man in April or May or June. So, I mean, and, and I feel like they'd be dumb not to with the movie coming out next year, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see something. Uh, last year they put two Spider-Man volumes pretty close together, and they might do something similar. Yeah. So it, I mean, obviously, Venom came out specifically because the Venom movie was coming out. So I'm curious. I mean, there's a lot of, I guess, rumors that you know Mysterio is going to be in the Spider-Man movie. Are we going to get? Um, I don't know if there's any real, you know, Mysterio-centric period. But I guess maybe we'll see an epic that at least has some Mysterio storylines in that, which could be Volume 19. They, I would imagine that um, they'll try and find a volume that has a really cool Mysterio cover that they can put on the front of the epic collection. 
So that that would definitely be volume nineteen because there's an amazing McFarlane cover with with Mysterio on it. Oh yeah, where you see Spidey's reflection in his in his dome is that is that the one I'm thinking? Yeah, of? I believe that's the one. It's it's very memorable. You slap that on the cover like that, it looks cool. There you go. Well, there we go. Yeah, nineteen volume nineteen. That would make sense. Let's uh, see if we are correct <laughs> when the announcement comes out. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as long as it doesn't come out like tomorrow, and then we look really dumb, you know, like the episode hasn't quite dropped yet, and then they release the volume, <laughs> and we're like, oh man. Yeah, sure. We'll we'll see what happens. So I guess are, are we gonna are we gonna be chatting about Spider Man for a while, or we just did two volumes? So I guess we're gonna take a hiatus. Yeah, well, the our Craven's last hunt, uh, which we've already recorded, that episode will come out in a few weeks, so you'll hear from Adam again soon. Um, but yeah, we might just take a break from Spider-Man because we've actually plowed through a bunch of his books. So um, we should probably catch up on Daredevil. And I know you want to talk about something that you've never read before, which happens to be, I think, uh, Master of Kung Fu. So um, that's right. I lo- yeah. I'm looking forward to diving into that, um, especially talking about some 70s Marvel with you because we've stayed pretty firmly in the 80s and 90s. I guess that's true. Yeah, that is true. Um, a quick note about a potential uh, volume 19. Um, I didn't realize that Mysterio cover I mentioned, it's literally the next issue. It's 311. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay. Perfect. <laughs> We're so close. So close. Okay, we should sign off here. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me back. And um, it, was, it was a lot of fun going through this uh, these issues with you. Great. And yeah, we'll catch you in the next time you're on the show. <laughs>